Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dame, and as always, he's Matt Feuerstein. Matt, it's been quite a while since we've done one of these, and that's all my fault, so I apologize. Right. Well, so we're not always Trevor Dame and Matt Feuerstein, because for about a month and a half there, um, we were not. Um, But now we are again, and uh, it is also my fault. We've we've both been uh, slacking off. A little bit. Note I said slacking. I'll leave it right there. That's an indie joke. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, but it, uh, uh, it's weird that we just took so long for whatever reason. But uh, honestly, this is like like we were saying, I think, at the end of the last episode, this is a really exciting point in Ring of Honor history. All these shows coming up to do. So I'm glad we finally get to do them. And I'm glad I f- we finally get to uh, do plugs again because, boy, that's just – that lights up my life. But honestly, the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, the network that we're on, it's a great network. And I'm always plugging the shows that I'm – you know, a lot of what Pro Wrestling Only does is plug all – is show – podcasts like this one that review all wrestling shows. But really, the whole network's about all wrestling. There are shows about new wrestling. But there's even a show, The Military Industrial Complex – they do interviews. They actually are big enough to get people to that are in the industry to talk to them rather than us where we just watch the shows and talk about them. They had uh, Candy Lee on, I believe, uh, uh, a women's wrestler on the latest episode, which I have in my queue to listen to. So, yeah, it's, it's a really good interview show. And, yeah, we even – we got every – this is like the Swiss Army Knife of wrestling podcast networks because there are clearly no other ones. Well – No ones that matter at least. Well, just to be clear, so it's the military-industrial suplex. Oh, yeah, yeah. I said it wrong. Which is a joke that I first heard uh, on Comedy Bang Bang, I think it was, or it might not have – it was actually might have been another – because it was um, James Adomian doing Jesse Ventura. And it might have been on Comedy Bang Bang, or it might have just been a separate video where he was like, oh, I'm going to give the military-industrial complex the military-industrial – the military <laughs> – yeah. I'm going to give the military-industrial complex the military-industrial suplex is what he said. I'm not going to even try to do the voice because that clearly screwed me up. Um, so I, I don't know if, if the show got it from that or if they just great minds think alike, but it is a good pun. Yeah, people – a good show. This- People don't know this, but we were originally going to call through the years "What's Up, Hot Dog," but we changed it at the last minute. So that would have it would have been the second show to be named after a comedy bang bang catchphrase. I but, well, my original idea was to call it Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero because I figured that was the one way to get Dave Melcher to listen. <laughs> that's a that's a throwback joke for uh, our older audience. We've had like three or four inside jokes within the first like two two and a half minutes of the show, but. Um, so there's very little news that happened between the last show we, we did and this one. This time we're covering World Title Classic. There is one piece of news I found that happened between the shows that I thought was interesting. So I guess we'll just get to that now. Um, from the Wrestling Observer section in their All Japan section around this the time of this show, Dave wrote, Things must be pretty bad for All Japan as Ring of Honor – Hoping Mudo and Satoshi Kojima could pop a big house for them like they did the first time they appeared, tried to get them for a big show, and were told that the company's financial situation was precarious, and Mudo couldn't leave the country even for a one-shot. So it's an interesting little tidbit where we never got the big All Japan um, Ring of Honor 
crossover again even though after the first one i think they said there was talk that both sides were really happy with how it went and there was talk about doing it again so here we get this little news story which i forgot about where apparently ring of honor actually did reach out and were like hey can we do this again and i don't think it ever happened again obviously they moved on to noah and dragon gate ring of honor did for their partners but amazingly 15 years later 15 and a half years later both companies still exist uh yeah in i would say uh Ring of Honor exists in such a dramatically different form. It's it's kind of weird to think about, like, true it, as the same company. But no, I know exactly what you mean. There is a company Wait. that is called Ring of Honor that has a <laughs> continuity with the title lineage of this one, and still uses some of the same show names, and still has giant scandals. So you know, I yeah. mean, it keeps up the tr- the traditions at least in that respect. Definitely. Um. But yeah. So that moves on. We'll just go straight to the show. We're really trucking this time. To- well, well, I just want to do – I should add. So okay. around this show was a major turning point in uh, the Rob Feinstein-related story. Uh, but we covered all of it already in, uh, in the one episode that we did on At Our Best. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that. But there, was, there were a lot of goings-on the week of this show that led to some major announcements that happened on this show. Yeah, so for anyone that's just tuning in lately or listening to this years later in the archives, the At Our Best episode is not just our regular show covering the At Our Best Ring of Honor event, but I would say the first three hours of that show is nothing but the entire – us going through the entire timeline of the 2004 Rob Feinstein split from Ring of Honor in painstaking detail. So yeah, we've covered pretty much everything there just so we didn't have to cover it in drips and drabs. But I think that's actually really good framing for you to bring up for this show. This this really was in some ways the first show where they had really broken away from Rob in some ways. Like you can hear in commentary Gabe is bringing up, you know, we have a new office and a new phone number and we're changing the rule. We're going to have a new you know top five ranking system soon and we're gonna have they're definitely trying in a lot of ways to really start to push like it's a new era for the company even though a few shows ago was literally ring of honor reborn it feels like in a way this is also it kind of the the start of a new era this is the first show post doug gentry right i believe so yes yeah well that was also a big milestone in its own right you can see on, and he can he talks about his experiences on the an honorable mention podcast, which is another good podcast that d- covers Ring of Honor. But uh, Shane Hagedorn, you can see, you know, Doug is not at ringside filming. Shane Hagedorn is one of the guys who's pitching in, and he is fi- on one of the handhelds at ringside filming the show, which I believe is the first time he ever did that so, for Ring of Honor. So, um, yeah, so the show we're talking about, of course, is World Title Classic. It took place. June 12th, 2004, in Dayton, Ohio, at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in front of a reported crowd of 400 people. The show was originally supposed to be called Ultimate Endurance, I believe, but its name changed for reasons that will become obvious as we talk about the show, I think. Um, Talking about the attendance, the PW Torch wrote at the time, Ring of Honor did not draw enough fans in Dayton, Ohio, estimated at 400, last Saturday, to guarantee a return visit. The crowd that was there 
were tremendous and gave us a huge amount of support, Sapolsky tells the Torch. We hope to go back to Ohio one day, but we really need to be able to draw about 200 more people to do that. We love the crowd there, and I think we will run Dayton again at some point in the future, just not anytime soon. The fans in attendance were all great and really made the show something special. And then Wade went on to write, Since Ring of Honor only runs events once or twice a month at this point, they are logically going to run more often in towns that draw bigger crowds, such as Elizabeth, New Jersey, which has drawn over 1,200 rather than other markets further away that drew, draw fewer fans. Um, they would keep running Ohio. I, I feel kind of bad that this was the show where like the word came of like Ohio needs to like stop slacking on coming to the show because the crowd that did show up, I thought this was probably the best Ohio crowd. And in some ways in, in some of the big matches, they were part of what made the matches good. I would say I actually would actually, if I hadn't heard that would have assumed this was the show that really made ROH's relationship with Dayton because it's true that for the rest of 04, right? They only really want run one other show in Dayton and it's not really a big show, right? But, yeah, that would be uh, the Ring of Honor goal, which is probably on paper like one of its yeah, lesser sexy cards on, Le- on paper. It's not one of their most remembered shows of that year. Yeah, but 2005 is a big year for ROH and Dayton. They have a few pretty big shows there. Um, uh, after that, kind of falls off again. But 05, ROH and Dayton were uh, like peas in a pod. And e- even jumping ahead a little bit, uh, relating to the Samoa Joe CM Punk 60 minute draw. Uh, I was doing some research and listening to some shoot interviews and things like that. And uh, Samoa Joe said in one of them that he was actually scared of doing the 60-minute draw in Ohio because Ohio, he said, he said something to the effect of they weren't a bad crowd before in Ring of Honor, but he didn't know if the there was also one of their hottest crowds before this, and he wasn't sure if they would stay hooked for a 60-minute match, but. Again, we'll get into it when we get into that match. I think they stayed very into it the whole way. Like I said, I think this was probably like the best Dayton crowd in terms of reaction we've gotten so far. Yeah, well, this is only the second show in Dayton, but if you count the battle lines are drawn, um, by far this was the best Ohio crowd. And um, and I do think you're right that the, the crowd made the show in a lot of ways. This was one of the best live crowds they've in terms of reactions that they had had up until this point in ROH at all. Absolutely. The um, the only other little bit of news we have that comes at the top of the show, I would say, is Mike Johnson wrote in the PW Insider. He said a number of readers sent word from word that Akio from World Wrestling Entertainment was visiting at the Dayton, Ohio event this weekend and could be seen watching the show. Akio lives in the immediate area and came by to see friends and say hello of course if you don't know don't remember that is also jimmy yang who would later work in ring of honor so just one of those weird little tidbits and it is interesting because that he exclusively refers to him in that news tidbit as akio because I, st- I think probably even at the time most of us thought of him as uh, jimmy yang from uh from uh the young dragons but yeah uh, but hey that is that was his name so i can't fault him for too much for that but well, I guess when that's the big news around a show, you probably don't have a lot of big news around a show. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot to talk about on the show, but yeah, there wasn't much that really set up this show uh, unless you get into the, the Feinstein. Yeah, the Feinstein stuff, which we went into in great detail. Yeah, um, but, I, I, I will say I, I'm pretty sure that before the show happened, it was not being advertised as world title classic. It was actually being advertised as ultimate endurance uh, yeah. because that was the big hook, which we'll talk about. 
and clearly it was overshadowed. In fact, um, I believe even reading uh, the PW Torch review of the show, I don't know if they got an early copy or what, um, Wade Keller titles his review of the show as, I'm reviewing the Ultimate Endurance DVD from Ring of Honor. So, yeah, this changed spontaneously due to the quality of a match on this show. Um, And that show starts off with Colt Cabana and Ace Steel outside the building in the parking lot. And that's going to be a thing where apparently I heard uh, the locker room was very small in this building. So we get a lot of segments and apparently the wrestlers also had to change into their gear in the parking lot. Good thing. Good thing the weather was good. (laughs) <laughs> um joe punk they were talking about they were talking about they said they had literally talked out their match in the parking lot and apparently a helicopter there's a helipad in, in this area and a helicopter was do um pilot was practicing landings while they were trying to like plot out the match so they had to like keep stopping because all of a sudden just the sound i guess from this helicopter practicing landings before the show. Not the only um, production difficulty this show dealt with. <laughs> yeah, th- this is this is a special show in that regard. <laughs> but uh, going to the opening segment, Cabana and A-Steel outside the building, the parking lot. They say they took out Christopher Daniels, and tonight they're going to take out Dan Moff and BJ Whitmer in the first ever Ultimate Endurance match. They walk just a few steps, and they see Les Thatcher, local Ohio wrestling mainstay, in conversation with referee Todd Sinclair and ring announcer and former commentary person Jeff Gorman. And they and they, and they uh, call them Generation Next, which I thought was very funny. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, Colton Ace confused him with Generation Next. Ace points out that the Ultimate Endurance match tonight has a whopping four stipulations, which doesn't it only have three stipulations? Yes, Um, and and another funny thing, because Ace was like, my Ultimate Endurance tonight, there's going to be submissions, there's going to be pinfalls. And I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a special match. He didn't do a good (laughs) job of explaining what was special about that match. He literally said that. He was like, yeah, there's submissions, pinfalls, like, oh, like, like a match. Pin attempts, ring entrances. This one's got it all. Slams, slams, (laughs) holds, and maneuvers. (laughs) Don't forget maneuvers. Um, So, yeah, uh, Ace jokingly, you know, he refers to Les Thatcher as Austin Aries. He asks Austin, quote-unquote, if he's ever worked a match with four stipulations before. I like that Les is like, I think so. (laughs) And um, (laughs) he makes clear that he's not Austin Aries. During this segment, we hear an extremely loud police or ambulance siren blaring. I just want to note, I wrote in my notes at this point, there are no take-twos in Ring of Honor, which, again, becomes very clear multiple times during this show. Well, let me give you you a little peek behind the curtain. Before we started recording trevor said that there was sirens happening outside of his own house which leads me to believe that the show has gone traveled through time and into trevor's own neighborhood and he's inside the dvd or the other thing the other that that's probably the most likely one the other probable cause would be i live in a bar- very bad neighborhood now where there are like regularly police standoffs there are no such uh, thing as very bad neighborhoods in canada trevor let's not <laughs> let's not try to act all hard uh, I, i've discovered the one but uh, anyway <laughs> um there colton ace then walk over to jimmy rave who is at his car Colt says he and Ace have saved a lot of money by switching to Geico, which was one of Colt's favorite lines at this point. Yeah, I was going to say, is that joke, like, actually timely in, in June 2004? 
I don't. I. I mean, it definitely isn't now. I, I imagine anyone that's listening to this that did not grow up in this era is going, "What the heck is, is a guy co?" Well, they probably don't. Like, they that, well, that joke is that joke is way played out by now. But I'm wondering if it was played out yet at the time. Um, I bet it was a little bit played out at the time. I mean, it's wrestling. They're never going to be on the exact cutting edge of comedy. That's probably one of the points is that Colt's kind of doing this cringe comedy. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, definitely one of those weird moments that takes you back and makes you realize how old we're all getting. Um, What's that? <laughs> wrestling does a great job with like commercial references. Uh, Colt, oh, but the Budweiser headbutt. And that was a classic one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Colt points out that Jimmy Rave has been on hard times lately, but it's not like he's directly lost that many of his matches he's been in. He says he's been in, you've been in those scrambles and those four man floppies, which I think they really missed out on not calling uh, these four corner mayhem matches or whatever they call them, four man floppies. It's never uh, too late. <laughs> Jimmy is sad about this. Ace and Colt shake his hand, and Colt does Colt say at this point vote vote for Donald? I couldn't quite make out what he said, but he says like vote for somebody. I don't know. Is, is Colt Cabana a time traveler at this point? I'm gonna have to go back and check that out because that would be that would be something. He'd be he'd be like the Simpsons times two. I um I I thought I couldn't tell if they were trying to like be smarmy, but it seemed like they were actually being nice to Jimmy Rave here. Because they were like, yeah, I mean, you've been losing, but, you know, you haven't been taking the pinfall, and it's really they're giving you a bad break. And it didn't seem like they, like, were undercutting it at all. It just seems like they were being, like, sympathetic. So I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, they were heels, so I assume they were actually being jerks, but they sounded like they were being nice. It's, it's weird because this segment really didn't have much of a point to it. It was more just uh, – we've talked about this before, but – in Ring of Honor, and maybe to their credit, I think in some ways, although sometimes you get segments like this that are kind of meaningless, whenever in early Ring of Honor they found a guy that was good at talking, like Christopher Daniels or Steve Carino or Colt Cabana, they would get a, a, a segment to talk pretty much every single show, whether they had something to say or regard. Like Even if they didn't have a great reason to talk, it was just like, you're good at talking, we're going to make sure – you have a segment where you walk around and talk at least once pretty much every single release if we have time for promos at all. Yeah, I mean this wasn't like a great segment or anything. Yeah. But I don't think I minded it being on the DVD. I mean it's good to have – like wrestling is sort of like variety and it's – you know it's good to have your entertaining people get a chance to be entertaining in the ways they can be entertaining. So uh, you know, it was fine. It would have been fine if they hadn't had it and it was fine that they did. It is nice where like wrestling that reminds you that the wrestling company is the larger world where not every wrestler is locked into just their feud. Like they can walk around and acknowledge other wrestlers. Like you know they're not involved with Jimmy Rave and they're not going to be involved with Jimmy Rave anytime soon. But it's just it's just a way of acknowledging people and reminding you. Oh yeah, there's lots of stuff going on right now. Agreed. And that brings us to the opening match, which was. The in-ring debut of the new and improved Carnage Crew, which is their moniker, not just me giving you a review myself, of Danny Daniels and Masada. And they defeat the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos in 6 minutes, 29 seconds, when Masada pinned Marcos after he and Daniels hit him with, I think I would call it, a double-team inverted brain buster onto their knees, I guess? Is the yeah, best way I, I just wrote it as, like, double drop on the knees. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Matt, what did you think about this? Uh, It's like it wasn't bad, but like it's sort of like it wasn't good either. And it sort of had like a stink on it just because the gimmick is not good. You know what I mean? Like it's just – It has a stink like a turd in a locker room bag. Yeah, that's the kind of stink I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, No, but like just like it's a crappy gimmick. Like clearly it's a crappy gimmick. Has there ever been like a the new blank 
that like worked? Has that ever? I mean, like the Hardys were the new weren't they the new Freedbirds for like a week? Um, but um, and there was the wasn't there the new midnight? Oh, it was like the new versus. Well, that one was kind of weird. It was like the Midnight Express, the versus new versus the, the old. The old Midnight Express doesn't count. Yeah, that. But yeah, anytime you're like the new, you're always going to be looked at as lacking. And you're also usually often positioned in a feud where you're going to lose to the original. So like you kind of know – like I have to imagine when Danny Daniels and Masada got this gimmick, they probably didn't think like we're going to beat the old Carnage crew. They're going to like cease to exist and this is just going to be our thing for a few years. Like you have to know – there's a shelf life when you get a gimmick called the new and improved Carnage Crew. I actually just thought now of a one that did work, which is uh, LAX. Um, but that's rare. It doesn't usually work that way. And also, they, I mean, you know, didn't much respect to Danny Daniels and Masada. They're good wrestlers, but they did not fit this gimmick nearly as well as Loken DeVito did. Loken DeVito were great at it, and also they weren't going anywhere. So it's like, what's the, I mean, it, it just was not a good gimmick. It did. Nobody remembers it fondly. It wasn't good. This match was, you know, it was a squash. It wasn't even. It wasn't even that much of a squash match. It was short back and forth match. You know, the the ring crew expressed they they got some offense in, like some good offense actually, and um, they uh, you know the Masada almost threw Marcos into the ref when he was trying to give him a buckle bomb, which I thought was fun. But the ref jet- jetted out of the way. Uh, I guess the finish was good. Um, there were, you know, there were tombstones, there were doomsday device type things, and uh, yeah, it was not really a bad match. It just, like, it just felt crappy because of the crappy gimmick, I guess. Also, um, Chris Lovey made a major announcement during this match. Yes, the biggest news, forget the match, is Chris I already Lovey have. Changed, <laughs> changed his name, and he, he well, he says... He, Midway through the match, he just out of nowhere gave as, you know, he always announced at, up to this point as Chris Lovey. He never acknowledged that he is Gabe Sapolsky, Booker of Ring of Honor. And he says, I have a confession to make. He goes, my name is is not Chris Lovey. From now on, we can call me by my real name, Jimmy Bauer. <laughs> and I don't know what this is about. He was Jimmy Bauer up until the time he stopped doing any commentary for Ring of Honor. Yeah, I have no idea why he changed his name. Like, he, he doesn't pretend to be a different person even. He just says, I've been living a lie. My name, my real name is Jimmy Bauer. I mean, I'm sure it's as simple as he thinks it's funny. Like, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. He's like, it's a new era. I'm going to ch- I'm gonna change my name, but it's also going to be a new fake name. And just, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe Chris Lovey had some inside joke-related stuff relating to the other two guys. And, like, so he... I don't know what it was, but clearly he just thought it'd be funny to act like he was going to say his real name and then make up a new fake name. Whatever. I don't care. He could be whoever he wants. But uh, for me, my thought, my, um, this match I thought was perfectly fine. I think if you're a brand new debuting tag team in Ring of Honor in this era, there's probably no better team to debut against than Dunn and Marcos because they're super over and will take a lot of bumps for you and you can toss them around which because they're so small, which – uh, the new and improved Carnage crew definitely took advantage of here. Like you said, there was a pretty scary spot where um, Masada is going to power bomb one of Don and Marcos, and uh, the referee is like just walk. And this is a referee, I think a local referee. I didn't recognize him. This must have been like an Ohio area referee they got, so they didn't have to have as many people dry or fly drive or fly in. But he walks, starts like 
getting in the way. And obviously Masato, Masato can't see because he's got a, a guy on in front of his face in the powerbomb position. And the other guy can't see because he's got his back to the ref. And he just barely gets out of the way in in time. And it looks like kind of almost a scary bump. Maybe he kind of noticed and tried to shift his weight. He took it pretty low on the turnbuckles. But yeah, apart from, that's like the most memorable spot of the match. Although, again, there was nothing wrong with this match. It was perfectly fine. But it probably says something that the bigger story is the name change. And also, I would say the thing we really noticed right off the bat, Matt, and it is a story throughout the night, is how bad the production is because they're obviously this is the first show away where we don't have, like you mentioned before, Doug Gentry, I believe is the first show away for him and just the lighting. There's a glare on things. It doesn't look great. And on one of the cameras, one of the um, handheld cameras at ringside, there is visible specks of dirt all over the lens that is noticeable the entire show. Like whenever the light shines on it, like someone just did not clean the lens of the camera. And that is like just a, you know, there, there, I like the charm of low budget indie shows. I don't need my indie to look great, but there is something crazy about just a camera that isn't cleaned. Not yeah, I mean it let that and that's not even talking about the backstage stuff, which I think was actually even worse um in terms of its production, um, which uh we'll get to specific instances that I can point to. But yeah, it's like a low budget indie that doesn't bother with lighting and you're just taking a camera and pointing it at the ring, like that's one thing that can be charming. This is like they still do all the lighting stuff and like it's dark, but then like it's too dark and there's glare and it's like – and yeah, the camera is dirty and it's it's just – I mean they've had a few shows like this. It's not like there weren't shows like this in the previous era. Um, the uh, Last Stand I can point to as uh, one that we talked about, right? But But this was – yeah, this was really bad. Also, I don't know if it was because of the company change, but they didn't have their ring apron either. Right, like the huh. the the mat was just like blue, and they didn't have like their apron that said their their logo and stuff. Um, that was unusual. Also, I mean, I figure I get why it would be a different ring in Ohio, but I'm pretty sure at the other Ohio shows they had their apron at the very least. Yeah, it's just it, it, the whole thing is weird. Again, um, an honorable mention: their podcast already covered this entire show, and I listened to it after I rewatched the show. I didn't want to have my I, ha- I wanted to make sure I did all my notes first, just so I wouldn't parrot all their opinions because I hate when that happens with reviews of anything. And um, but one thing I heard when I re-listened to that show was Shane Hagedorn talked about. You know, he had some experience filming local sports and the people that were at Ring of Honor, not gay, but I forget somebody else was trying to tell him, like, this is how you white balance and all these things. And he was like, I I knew that what he was telling me wasn't the way to do it, but I, you know, I was brand new in the company. I didn't want to get in trouble. And I mean, some, that's some stuff like white balancing is something that's been a noticeable problem on a bunch of shows. So that makes sense. I could definitely believe that story because it's not this. A lot of the production problems, the stuff like the dirt on the camera. This is a first time thing, but stuff like glare or white balance, those are not first time problems we're seeing here. But it's definitely all kind of combining on this show. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was bad. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know what else to say, but. 
it was bad enough that Wade Keller in The Torch, when he reviewed the show, singled it out. He actually wrote in his review of this match, terrible lighting in this match was headache-inducing. So poor Wade getting a migraine from this. But moving on to match two, we get um, a do-or-die tag team match of Armand Hussein and Sean Osborne taking on JC Starr and TJ Dog, so some local talent. And it ends in a no contest because... The match is about to start when Homicide shows up and he jumps in the ring. Dave Prezak follows him in with a microphone and he informs the crowd that Homicide isn't cleared to wrestle tonight as he has over 30 stitches in his hand from an outside-the-ring fight. Uh, Prezak asks Homicide what he's doing here then, and Homicide says he's here to kill someone. One of the wrestlers in the match gets on the mic and he yells at Homicide. He says they've all worked long and hard to get this spot. Homicide then immediately takes him out, and he proceeds to destroy all four men, including pulling off the face protector of one of the four wrestlers and then beating him with his own face protector, followed by forking him in the head as the crowd chants, fork him up, homicide, fork him up. So a, a not the greatest uh, showcase for these poor wrestlers that went to the show. I hope uh, I hope like the random indie guy that got forked and wasn't even given a name I hope he got paid well at least for doing that. I'm suspecting he didn't because at least some chicken fingers, something. I mean, like seriously, um, that's like that's a big that's a big ask of a guy. It's like you're not actually getting any real exposure, and also you have to get your head cut open, like pretty much for real with a fork. Um, I feel like that's something you shouldn't do unless you're getting paid pretty decently. <laughs> Definitely. Um, a woman, I believe this is Lacey. Yeah, I, I, I wrote that too. It looked like Lacey to me. I believe this is the first appearance of Lacey in Ring of Honor. She was just, I guess, a a manager for one of the four per- people in the match. She comes in. She tries to hop on, ho- stop Homicide. He gives her an exploder. So we've stopped doing the man-on-woman violence count, but that is the first of multiple instances <laughs> tonight of man-on-woman violence. Yeah, this, this, one- this show is a real throwback. <laughs> real vintage ring of honor. Uh Uh, One wrestler is left standing. Homicide stares him down until the wrestler just leaves rather than fight. Homicide then responds to that by laying out the ref. He just wanted to hit another person. Crowd chants cop killer, which will never be not be weird as homicide stays surrounded, just stands surrounded by laid out bodies. Homicide then goes on to say, if they're saying he can't wrestle tonight, He's going to do something disrespectful to this company. No justice, no honor. The crowd chants Homicide's name as he flips them all off. So Homicide basically not being able to do any buy his way into getting heel heat, although he would actually get some later in the night. So one thing to note, Matt, is uh, that stuff that uh, Dave Prezak said on the mic about Homicide having injured hand. That's real, and the PW Torch would write, Homicide hurt his hand when he punched a fire extinguisher backstage at an indie event two weeks ago. There was blood everywhere from the cuts he suffered, which ended up requiring 20 stitches. And Mike Johnson would write in PW Insider, um, although he was supposed to take it easy at the Dayton show due to his hand injury, Homicide still ended up tearing open the stitches in his hand. Homicide suffered the injury in an out-of-the-ring incident where he ended up putting his hand through glass. So I don't know if those are conflicting stories or if homicide punched through the glass of like a, one of those boxes that holds a fire extinguisher. But apparently that part is very real. And in fact, I was looking through old ring of honor news wires. Homicide was originally supposed to wrestle John Walters on the show in a match where Walters guaranteed that he'd win. And up to this point, they had been doing a thing with John Walters where, where he guaranteed a win. He always won. So 
I I would guess that he was going to win this one too, maybe or at least or cheat to win. I don't know, but it's interesting I mean, he, probably, he probably would have won because uh, he was still a pure babyface at this point, and and he was still you know getting a push at this point. So yep. And if you're wondering why Julius Smokes isn't here. Uh, the PW Torch at the time wrote, Last week, Ring of Honor announced that Julius Smokes was, has been suspended for one show for his tirade on the May 22nd show at the end of the show and would not wrestle in Dayton as a result. So, just a way Suspen- I guess, to write them Yeah, out. I mean, like, that's, that's such a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> suspended because of his tirade. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's just a storyline thing to go, hey... Yeah, you know, here's... we don't we don't want to justify paying you to like fly or drive to Dayton. We don't right. need you, so we'll just say you're not on the show. Um that brings us to the six man mayhem match. The hottest new match in wrestling, as uh Jimmy Bauer always tells us. Uh Jimmy Jacobs defeated Caprice Coleman, Delirious, Loke, Matt Seidel, who was escorted to the ring by Daisy Hayes, and Rain Man in nine fifty one. When he pinned Loke after he hit the Contra code, which is the big slice spread number two off the top rope. Um, Matt, I thought this was a lot of fun as a spot fest goes. This was one of the more enjoyable ones I've seen. But something I've discovered, I think, watching these last two shows is these spot fests are more fun when it's not the same guys month after month. And so that we're getting a little bit of variety here, I think, is really fun. Um, Yeah, just a a really good... uh, match in the sense that I thought it was really novel, uh, like not novel, but we, there was a lot of great flyers in ring of honor, e- even in this early thing, but I don't think there were many flyers that were like as mechanically smooth as Matt Seidel, like Matt Seidel, even at this point in his career was one of the, I think one of the smoothest flyers of his generation. There's lots of guys before him in ring of honor, guys like amazing red, you know, all the SAT guys or all the special K guys where they could do incredible stuff, but it was never quite smooth. And in a way that was part of the thrill of it, where you always felt like these guys were on the, on the like border of, you know, killing themselves. Like they just barely pulled off these incredible moves. But with Matt Seidel, everything is so fluid and it feels like the rotate. He's one of those guys where, where he does a move and he jumps in the air. It feels like, time slows and his rotations are always so fluid and they end like I keep going back to that word just because they always end right when they're supposed to. you never feel like he's a second too soon or a second too late there's a move here I think where he does a springboard moonsault off the second rope and he rotates his body right at the end just to turn it into a senton landing and it's one of the most graceful things and this match is just you know Stuff like that is just so fun to see, and obviously a six-man's a great way to show that kind of thing off. And the only other guy I want to mention before throwing it to you is I thought the other guy that stood out in this match along with Seidel was Caprice Coleman. And this is one of those matches where I watch him, I go, why didn't this guy get a higher prominence role somewhere in wrestling? Because in this match, he isn't that far behind Seidel. He just has this great athleticism. He has a great physique. He has pretty good size for the indies. He's doing like innovative moves like a dominator into a pile driver. He's just another guy. He has just amazing vertical leap. And I don't know why more didn't become of him. I, I don't know. I, I just don't know why he didn't get a bigger shot somewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, who knows? I mean, he disappeared from ROH for like a several, like a five year period. Um, after this, so I don't know if there was other stuff going on in his life, uh, or just he didn't get a fair shake. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. 
Um, I don't like this match quite as much as you did. Um, I just the flow of it didn't totally work for me. Um, but I agree with you about Seidel. I definitely think he stood out. Um, I, it was it was kind of his first real chance to shine in ROH, right? Like he he had been in a couple matches before, but like this was his first chance where he personally got a, a showcase. Yeah. And he made the most of it, you know, like that, that twisting senton that you were talking about. He got to do his shooting star press to break up a uh, pinfall attempt. Uh, him and Rainman did a cool spot where they like crisscrossed and then dove onto opposite sides of the ring. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think the one difference that I noticed uh, from between this and other scrambles or like six man mayhems is uh, at the beginning there was a moment where Jacobs and Delirious like were trying to outweird each other, like Jacobs with his husses and Delirious with his wacky sounds and stuff. And you know that's always fun because those were new characters at the time, especially Delirious. And also they were like doing submission attempts early, and obviously they kept getting broken up. Um, I thought Loke handled himself pretty well. I liked that um, that Jacobs got a chance to win. Um, cause I would, I didn't expect that even many years later. I didn't think that he was going to get a win. Um, but all in all, it was pretty good, but I just, I don't know. The ma- these matches a lot of times are just about the pacing and the way it flows. And for whatever reason, it didn't totally flow as much as I would have liked. But all the performances were good. Um, especially the guys you mentioned. And I also thought Rain Man was better than I remembered too. See, I thought Rain Man, like, he didn't do anything wrong, but I thought he kind of got lost in the shuffle for this match because, I mean, Delirious and Jimmy Jacobs, like you said, they had comedy to start, and they have the most kind of colorful, recognizable, easy-to-get-over-to-a-new-crowd characters. And then Seidel and Coleman were doing really cool flying moves, and Loke has, you know, he doesn't have to do, although he looked to be in the best shape of his career, I would say, in these recent shows. Absolutely. I don't think he was ever in better shape than he was uh, in this time period. And he did well enough in this match, but even him, he can be overshadowed because he's already a regular. But I I felt like Rayman was the one guy where he didn't really have kind of a thing to hold his hat on. Like he didn't have the, the big crowd, you know, eye catching flying. He didn't have the big character. He wasn't already established like Loke. And it was just kind of, he kind of felt like the odd man out to me. He got a couple of cool big spots that I found memorable, but it's a fair point, uh, point taken. Um, just looking over my notes, uh, I believe this is the beginning of Gabe doing his running thing on commentary where he says that the rumor is that uh, Delirious wears his mask because he has a lizard face, which is something he would do repeat a lot over the years. Um, through the Mark years? Nolte, through, yes, he would do a lot through the years. Mark Nolte does his usual, I can't comment, the Uf- the FCC might be listening. which Although he does at least acknowledge, he said, does the F- I don't know how much the FCC regulates DVDs. So at least he acknowledges that this is not a television program. I just can't imagine, like, what's so controversial about talking about a lizard face? Like, yeah. what's the FCC going to get on him for? Um, Clearly just trying hard to get his catchphrases in. Gabe also did his usual thing where every time now Jimmy Jacobs wrestles, he, like, cute, he tees up Mark Nolte to shit on him. He, he does his whole thing where he goes, well, uh, what would Bruiser Brody – would Bruiser Brody be acting like Jimmy Jacobs? And and Mark Nolte this time just says something like, if Bruiser Brody was in the ring right now with Delirious, they'd be giving Delirious the last rights right now. And it's one of those things where it's like, who does this help? It's just 
I don't know. It's not a huge thing, but yeah, Gabe, Gabe obviously just liked winding Nolte up. Yeah, and Nolte every... did not appreciate the Brody the Brody shtick at all. Yeah, that would be ending in the not too distant future. But yeah, um, that brings us next to a six man tag team match: Generation Next of Alex Shelley, Austin Aries, and Roderick Strong with Jack Evans at least initially uh, defeated Jimmy Jacob, Jimmy Rave, I mean John Walters and Matt Stryker in 16 minutes 49 seconds when Aries made Rave submit to the Rings of Saturn. Um, this was originally supposed to be Shelley versus Stryker in the second match of their, a, what would turn out to be an aborted best two out of three match. Um, I don't know if this counts as one of those matches or not, but uh, Shelley starts off the same. He comes out with the rest of generation next and he gets on the mic. He introduces the stable one by one, just like he did on the last show, because that show hasn't come out on DVD at this point. So the crowd needs to know in this different city who they are. He, uh, he tells Matt Stryker that he can leave or he can get beat down. Uh, Jack Evans is great during all of this. He just hams it up and laughs in the background like an annoying jerk at all. At she- at, he laughs at all at Shelley's jokes and like his line at, at um, where Shelley says, just like Ray Charles, Matt Stryker couldn't see it coming. So those are the kind of jokes Stry- uh, Shelley's throwing out. Uh, Stryker rejects Shelley's offer to leave and he flips him the bird. Jen next beats him down. Shelley wraps a chain around his fist and he punches Stryker who blades. Walters and uh, Jimmy Rave then run in from the back to make the save and Generation Next bails to the outside, except for Jack Evans, who gets caught in the ring and beat down 2-1-1. And then Walters then powerbombs Evans from the ring to the floor. But powerbomb feels almost generous, Matt, because he basically just drops him straight to the hardwood floor that has no covering on it, like just a, a sack of potatoes. Evans lands with a sickening thud. I have no idea. Do you think this was planned or not? Because it's weird. Um... It feels planned in the sense that they used it as an excuse for Evans being hurt in the ultimate endurance match he'd wrestle in later and getting taken out early. But it's just such a, a nasty, dangerous-looking bump. If you, I re-round this to watch it again. And Aries starts walking away as Evans is you know, going to take this bump. But then as, as Evans is falling, Aries like runs back towards Evans, but nowhere close enough to catch him. I have no idea if this was real or not. I mean, I, I'm i just going to assume it was planned because it's pro wrestling. And it's Jack Evans. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know for sure, but I at no, at no point did it occur to me that they, it was this was not a planned spot. It did occur to me that it was a insane spot and probably a not smart spot, um, but did not occur to me that it was like a surprise to anybody involved. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just it, it's just so ugly. Like, it's just such a brutal spot where it's one of those things where I can't believe someone would willingly take it. But again, it's Jack Evans. He basically takes a power bomb from the ring. The guy just throws him over the ropes to the floor. And it's, again, like a hardwood basketball floor or whatever and not covered by anything. And he just takes it in a really ugly way. But moving on, um, Stryker gets helped to the back by refs. And his blade job's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good gusher. Oh, I think it's a great one. I was like, whoa, that's a crimson mask. Like literally the next line I wrote my notes is it's a proverbial crimson mask. Uh, Walters goes to the ring and – or no, he gets on the mic and he says that he and Rave came to Dayton to kick ass. Walters recaps the events of the Gen Next show. And he says, guess what? We're still here after all that. And I swear to God there was a pause when he said that and – 
there were silence and maybe one or two people clapped, which I felt was like, oh, that's one of those points where like it's better to have no one clap than one or two people, I felt like. Um, the crowd chants for a fight. Shelly, who's angry at Evans being laid out, says if they want to fight, they can have it. But it's three on two. It's a handicap. You know, it's going to be a handicap match because, you know, they just took out their friend. The impromptu match starts immediately. And upon seeing this striker, who at this point was being carried to the back by the refs, he's not even through the curtain. He sees that the match is starting. He runs back and joins the match and starts, like, throwing punches and doing offense. And he does not even for a second, like sell being out of this match, it, it, which I thought was really weird. I thought there was a lot of weird things about this match. In fact, I'm going to give you, let you be the first talk to talk about Joe versus punk. Cause I just want to go through to through how weird this match was to me. So first thing is, this is one of those matches I found. It's so complete. This is one of those matches that would be completely different in today's modern Indies compared to 15 years ago. You got, these hot new group that just formed generation next and they could do really cool stuff. And if you told me like if, if on PWG or AAW or something today, uh, uh, a match like this happened where they had just formed a stable, the, the show before, and they're getting 16 minutes. I'd say, Oh, they're going to do like a million spots and a million near falls. This is a very grounded match. That's basically mostly built around two long periods where one team has one of their guys getting beat down for a long time. And I don't use face in peril because one of the beatdowns, the first one is Roderick strong gets isolated for a long time, which again, it's kind of weird because he's on the heel team and that's how the match starts. And then eventually he makes a tag and then they have one of the faces gets isolated and you would think, Oh, well it's going to be a um, match striker. Cause he's the one that got hit with a chain is covered with blood, but no, it's Jimmy rave gets beat down the whole match. And again, I feel like this is a match where it, it's a it's a formula match, except they do everything against the formula. Like the babyface gets isolated. I mean, the heel gets isolated before the babyface, and the babyface that gets isolated isn't the one that's hurt. And they tease that's going to be a handicap match where they're going to have to overcome the odds. Except not only do they not overcome the odds, the guy that gets hurt comes in and joins the match right when the match starts. Like you would think that when you see striker get laid out and bloodied and taken to the back, you, you would think the story of this match is okay. Um, Walters and Rafe are going to try and fight two on three. They're going to eventually lose out to the numbers game. And just when all hope seems lost, striker is going to make this dramatic comeback and run in and, and save the day. And, and whether they win or not, he's at least going to have this big comeback moment, but no, like, it just, the match starts with him like running back to the ring and kind of getting his comeback moment there and then standing on the apron for most of the match and just as a participant. And even, um, even, uh, rave losing clean. Then you would think Walters has it out to lose cause he's bleeding, but it's rave tapping out clean in a match where we're told that because rave has lost so much recently, we're told that if he loses this match, He's out of Ring of Honor, and he takes the direct fall, which we'll talk about the storyline ramifications. But I just felt like I felt like this was a disappointing match, even though the work itself was fine. But I, I, I would just call this kind of like an average at best match because it, it's like a match that sacrifices a lot of the thrills and the spots and the and the exciting spots for telling a story, except then it kind of tells the story in a really weird way. But that's just what I feel. What do you think about it? 
this is going to be one of our classic disagreements. I loved this match. Like, wow. I really liked it a lot. Like, so I'm not, this was not better than the match of Generation Next. I'm not saying that. No one say I said that. It's definitely not. But because of varying expectations, I think I appreciated this match more than that one because my expectations were so high for that one. First of all, I disagree with you about how Stryker portrayed himself. I, um, I think that he came back to House of Fire. It was like this intense win. And then he collapsed from it, basically. And there was even a spot during the match where Walters went to tag him and he said no. He was, and I thought that was really cool. He was like, I can't. I can't right now. Like He was, he was like losing too much blood. And I really appreciated that spot. Like, he, he gave himself that win, but he tired himself out. Um, but I, I just thought, like, the, the mat work was really good. You know, Shelly is obviously great at that stuff. I also thought at the beginning, like, when Stryker came back and did his House of Fire, um, the crowd was pretty tepid. By the end of the match, they were really, really into it. They were really into Stryker. They were cheering him. His charisma increased like, a hundred times because of the blood covering his face. Which, you know, that's wrestling. That's how it happens. Um, but, yeah, but, like, you're, you're right. There was some against formula stuff, but I didn't think it hurt the match. Like, there was a strong hot tag to Ares, but Ares got cut off pretty quickly. And, you know, then they worked over Rave for a long time. And part of the storyline was, like you said, Rave needed to win. Or he was going to lose his spot. And he lost. So, uh, so we lost his spot, uh, temporarily. So, but I thought that was, like, I thought, like, there were good stories throughout the match. I, I, I liked that they were, you know, that there was a lot of stuff where, like, Walters and Stryker, you know, they weren't smart, but they were, they were, uh, un- they were foolishly distracting the ref, which, um, which allowed Generation Next to double, triple team, which I think is not against formula. I think that's classic heel stuff, right? Getting the baby faces to uh, distract the ref so they could do their sneaky stuff. So I like that. Um, I liked that Ares got to like do a 450, but it wasn't the finish because well, because well, it was the finish, but he broke up the the cross face and got the 450, and then and and got the rings of Saturn on Rave. Um, I also thought. They did, like, the, the final segment was good, uh, like, it was, I, I don't know, I thought it was just, like, a good series of big moves. Um, I liked the whole striker running up the ropes to throw off Ares. I thought, I thought like I said, I thought he felt a lot more charismatic than usual in this match. I liked that striker did rolling Germans on both of uh, Shelly and Strong. I don't know. I thought that he was really good in this. I also enjoyed some making fun of some weird commentary decisions. Like <laughs> like Mark Nolte calling John Walters John Walter multiple times. Oh, yeah, I noted that. Yeah, he, he forgot the S. Like, and I thought, well, sometimes you might just, you know, a slip of the tongue. But he, no, he did it a bunch of times. My favorite, though, and this actually came up again later, was when he says that Generation Next has the advantage because they have a lot more experience teaming together. And now we've been, <laughs> we've been watching all these shows. I'm right that this is the second. This is the second time they've teamed together, right? Yeah, I mean, or the second listen, show at least. This is the, the the last show was called Generation X because that's when the group formed. Like, right, and and I'm pretty sure I got to check my notes when we get to the match, but I'm pretty sure something similar is said by one of the commentators. In, um, I think what they say is during the Ultimate Endurance, they're like, "These are four of the best tag teams in the world," and it's like. Austin Aries and Jack Evans have never tag teamed together before. <laughs> yeah, so. like I, I would be shocked. Like I guess there's a slim chance they could have teamed together in some other indie, but I would be shocked. It wasn't on a regular basis, no. Yeah, I, I would be shocked that Jack, if Jack Evans and Austin Aries had ever teamed together before this show. And 
Yeah, exactly what you said. Um, but but like I I don't know. I thought I thought the stories they told were good. I thought that they really won the crowd over. I thought that Stryker did a good job. I um and 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 I did and I do think he sold. I think he sold the beatdown. I just think he sold it in a different way, maybe than someone might typically. But I've never seen that spot before, where somebody was like, maybe I'm sure I've seen it, but I, I don't. I've, it's rare enough that I don't remember it, where a guy was tried to get tagged in, and he was like, just like, no, no, don't tag me in. I can't. Like, I thought that was really cool. I didn't hate the match. I I, I think maybe. I see. Here's the thing. I think one of the things about this is you were going in expecting, you know, not with no expectations. A mid, a mid, one, a mid card match, yeah. yeah with uh, with invo- thing, involving Matt Striker and babyface uh, Jimmy Rave, yeah. <laughs> I was watching this match, and I and once the store, once like the beatdown started, I was kind, of, I was just thinking, oh, I kind of know exactly how this formula match is going to go, and I was kind of just i guess puzzled by the choices they take in some respects but again like maybe that's me being guilty of reviewing the match i was expecting to see rather than the match i actually saw which i i think when you review things you know you should review what you see not what you're hoping for um did you did you notice that the refing like uh todd sinclair i didn't think had a great night on this where he was getting distracted by the heels, which is you're you're supposed to do that in a tag match. But he was so late then in like turning around to see the the heels pinfalls, which puts the heels kind of a, in a sympathetic position. And they went to that well so often that the crowd started chanting like something like "Kill the ref" at one point. Yes, they, and, de- they definitely did chant "Kill the ref." Uh, and, and even Nulty and Gabe kind of started to point out like the ref wasn't doing a good job, which you never want to be the story of the match in that respect. No, you're right that he wasn't at his best, but I I, I didn't think it took that much away from the match. Yeah, and again, these are I I didn't hate the match, but I just I don't I think it's not a case of one person hating it and one person loving it. I think it's more just yeah, like I thought it was kind of a little disappointing, kind of middle of the road, and you were pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I noticed, well, first off, I want to single out one spot I really did like is uh, Generation Next broke out like a straight up Mishinoko pro like kai and tai dojo he'll move like pose where they hold a guy an opponent and make him bend over and then had alex shelley like stood on his back and did like a pose on him which is like a classic kai and tai thing and then he came down and like double stomped him his head on the way down which was really cool i really like that actually um and did you notice also I, I I was watching this match, I was going, boy, Alex Shelley's hair is like really high tonight. And the crowd must have noticed this too, because he got a brief Cosmo Kramer chant from a few people in the crowd. So I did not notice that, but that's a good one. Yeah. He was good. this this was when he was baby bear, I think. I, I think so, yeah. Um so Going to the result of the match, Jimmy Rave did lose, and uh, as per the stipulation, he was supposed to be, you know, he's lost too much, he's out of Ring of Honor. And obviously, he would be back very soon as the crown jewel of the embassy. He'd get relaunched as a heel. So one of the big things I did some research on surrounding the show was people at the time completely bought hook, line, sinker that this was a legit thing. Um, Jimmy Rave went on his live journal back when live journals were a thing, kid. That's kids. Live journal was like WordPress. Um, wrestlers had blogs before podcasts. And this is what Jimmy Rave wrote on his live journal at the time. Anyway, after losing the six men I was in, 
I was informed that I'd be done with Ring of Honor. Naturally, I, I asked why and was told that because of my performances in the last year and, and the backlash from the fans, they thought it would be f for the better. I guess I'm kind of upset about it because I feel that I've produced every time I was out there, but I guess that's just my feelings. It's kind of funny that some people that I've never met can go on the internet and cost me my job thus taking money from myself and my family. Thanks. It would be nice if those same people who bash me would email me their employer's email addresses and phone numbers so I can try and get them fired. I guess the best thing for me to do is to make it very clear that Ring of Honor has screwed up and I'm going to bust my ass everywhere else to prove that. Now, if you're wondering, is this real or not, I can jump to the observer, I guess, in some observer, Dave wrote something like, welcome to the business, kid, or something upon seeing this. Wow. And and this is what the this is what the PW Torch wrote. Um, in a strange happening, Jimmy Rave lost his job in the ring as part of a storyline and didn't know it really meant he was losing his job in real life. Rave lost the fall in the six-man do-or-die tag match in Dayton, Ohio, assuming it was part of an angle, and was said to be blindsided after the show when Sapolsky told him that they really were going to let him go and not book him for future shows. Ring of Honor has made a public issue of his job being on the line at recent events. Rave, who is good friends with several top Ring of Honor wrestlers, was said to be taken aback and upset with the decision. He told friends that Sapolsky told him that he wasn't connecting with the fans and they were going to invest in other young talent instead. Although Rave was upset with the decision, he did hang out with everyone after the show at the after party and was in relatively good spirits. He lashed out on his, on his website the next day. Uh, Wade um, quotes that, and I'll just go... Um, his comments led some to believe, to think the firing was an angle after all, and he was returning as a heel who hated quote, internet smart marks, unquote. But if it's an angle, his friends say he's not in on it as he was taking his departure from ring of honor hard since he apparently loved being part of the crew. So Matt, I went, I did some more research. I watched part of a shoot interview, uh, Jimmy rave did in the last couple of years with RF video. I listened to the an honorable mention podcast episode they did where they did a full new interview with Jimmy rave on both of those. Jimmy rave said, like I knew on the day of this show that I was coming back this was all an angle. I wasn't really mad. The live journal wasn't a real thing. And it's pretty wild that like how much out on a limb Wade apparently goes to the torch saying like, no, his friends are telling me this is real. But yeah, if you, according to Jimmy Rave and in multiple interviews in the present, he's like, no, I knew the whole time. This was not something they turned into an angle. I knew right from the start. I'm coming back. I mean, also like common sense tells you this, right? <laughs> Like, that they're I not mean, just going to, like, play with this guy's emotions, right? I mean, it would be insane if, if Ring of Honor, because for for multiple shows, like you just said, yeah, for people that haven't been keeping up with us, they had said on multiple shows they had been doing this, well, Jimmy Rave hasn't won much, and if he doesn't win soon, he's going to be released. It would be crazy to make that big a deal of it and then not tell the guy he's actually getting fired for real, like – that would be insane. I would say it's never happened before, but actually doing some research for another project of mine, um, uh, I believe Chavo Guerrero Jr. actually claimed that like he would, did one of those feast or fired matches in TNA where one person that gets a box where it's like a title shot and then one person gets a box and they get fired. And that's how they actually fired him and they didn't tell him ahead of time. I mean, and, but even that, I'm like, it's wrestling. Do I really believe that? Like, I mean... I don't know, maybe, I, it's, but it seems crazy to me. I believe he might have gotten some kind of settlement or something. I don't know, but, like, I, I remember the report was he was pissed that, like, 
they did not tell me ahead of time that I was fired from a feast or fired match. I mean, I can believe it. I can believe anything when it comes from TNA. So, but yeah, it, it's kind of amazing that people got sucked in on this, uh, on this angle, but they definitely did. Um, after the match, strikers yelling at the ref who bails to the outside striker and Walters check on the crowd. He gets a, a, on rave. I mean, they check on rave. He gets a standing ovation from the crowd because they, you know, the crowd really did, I guess, think that maybe this was it for him. And one thing I want to mention is like you said, Stryker did get really over by the end of this match. And I did get one of those kind of sad moments where it's almost like some of this stuff we've seen with Xavier, where it's like, you know, that like he's already, his push is dead. He's kind of already had his shot, but then you see him getting over here and granted it's like his home area, but it's like, uh, just one of those like, Oh, like a little too little too late. Cause this was like in a lot of ways, a good performance from him and the crowd liked him. And you just know, like he's on a downward trajectory no matter what at this point. Yeah, I mean, us having seen all of Rave's ROH babyface run now before the the embassy run, he was pretty good, right? Like I mean, like he wasn't didn't light the world on fire, but he always gave a solid performance. I never remember watching a match of his and being like, "Oh, Jimmy Rave, like he really needs to get it together." He didn't have uh, a lot uh, of personality, but his in-ring mechanical performances, I think were always good. I think that was a, that's a good way to describe him. I would say it's like he was always solid. Like he rarely stood out. And uh, he had a couple. A way, he had a couple of very good performances in some of those like scramble type matches. But yeah, like he never like I, I don't remember any like oh yeah that was a great Jimmy Rave singles match or anything like that. Is in a way that's what makes part of what makes this angle believable when you see hear the PW Torch story that they were fed that you know or the one that. Jimmy also helped put out there, which is, oh, Gabe told me that just yeah, I he felt I hadn't gone over enough and they were gonna move on with somebody else. Like Rave had never looked bad in Ring of Honor, but he had not had any kind of hallmark like buy the DVD for this match kind of performance that would lead you to like it, it was very plausible. You could see Gabe telling Rave at that point, yeah, I'm moving on. And so that made it believable. It wasn't like, oh, Rave was just tearing it up. And then they try to do a storyline where he got fired for not like capturing the fans enough. Um, we cut next to J- Dave Prezak, who is outside in the parking lot interviewing CM Punk, who is sitting in a chair just in the parking lot in front of a truck, just randomly in front of someone's parked truck. Uh, the lighting is completely gray and blown out for this one. Yeah, and, and, even, and even out of focus at certain points when they zoom in on him. It's like really bad. And uh, Punk cuts a promo as we hear birds loudly chirp in the background, which for some reason, just the the contrast between a like serious CM Punk promo on the verge of like one of the biggest matches of his indie run with birds chirping. Like it just made me laugh out loud multiple times going like, what am I what am I doing here? Why and, do uh, birds suddenly appear every time CM <laughs> Punk is near? <laughs> well, they long to be close to him, Matt. Oh, uh, yes. Right. Of course. Punk talks about the wins he's had. He says this is his first world title shot in Ring of Honor, and it's going to be his only world title shot because he's going to win it tonight. Matt, my main takeaway I I got from this, it was a fine promo, but my main takeaways were it's all gray and birds were chirping. Yep, right. The production was very distracting. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Next, we cut to Les Thatcher with Samoa Joe somewhere else in the same parking lot. Birds are still chirping. Uh, Les tells Joe that Ring of Honor will be crowning a new pure champion soon. Joe says the pure title will never be held in the same esteem as the world title, and that's because of Samoa Joe. Joe says he's held the title for 14 months and that 19 men have tried to take the title from him, but they couldn't get it done. Joe says tonight Punk will be number 20 and then he references New Japan calling him out and wanting to see one of their men take the title from him Les then tells Joe that they have a great surprise for Joe tonight and he thinks Joe will be really excited about it I like Joe's reaction to the um, the pure title announcement where he's just like alright seriously again like it was failed the first time it'll fail the second time I thought I thought that was pretty good but it's kind of funny like these promos are pretty unassuming considering how big the match is going to end up being and again, just the visual of it, them having to be done outside in a parking lot. And um, the other thing is, uh, this wasn't really mentioned here, but it was, gets mentioned later on commentary. Uh, Gabe announces that they've changed the name of the pure wrestling title to just the pure title. They've taken the word wrestling out. I don't know why they made that. Ch- like, I don't know what that changes. No, it, it feels very Vince McMahon, right? Like, just like we exactly. have a random, I don't know. Like they they just have they have like a, a kind of like a random like word, language related thing that clearly bugged somebody, but no one else understands it. Yeah, it just yeah one of those things where it's so inconsequential. It's just like why'd you? It's not not a bad thing. It's just like why'd you do this? Like it's it's there's nothing different about this, but. Um, Moving on, there's a next up was a four corner survival match where Hydro, who is scored to the ring by Angel Dust and Becky Bayless, defeated Chad Collier and Ray Gordy and Superstar Steve when he made Collier submit to some kind of Cobra Clutch looking type variation submission move. We joined this match in progress, and I believe it says uh, due to time constraints is what we're told. Uh, Gabe says they're changing the name of the pure wrestling title. Oh, that's what I just said. We probably see less than a minute of this match, so there's not really much we can say. It's just, hey, it's the start of the Jay Lethal push. After the match, we so it's so so they decided that it was not worth making this a double disc set just to show the full match of this. (laughs) We had to get we had to have uh, a Colt Cabana talk about switching to Geico so we could have a. But actually, after the match, we uh, follow Hydro through the curtain. And Becky is excited. He saying, you know, you won and Special K never wins. And then Generation Next is there waiting to congratulate him, which it took me a minute to figure this out because almost the entire shot is in pure inky, inky blackness. There is one <laughs> lit, lit window way in the back. You cannot see anyone here. You can only hear them. It is staggering to me that they did not shoot this. I, I know what it, what happened, which is Gabe loves doing the – we follow the wrestler back right through the curtain and the promo immediately starts. We try to make it seem more organic like that. But the lighting is so bad that you literally cannot see anybody. Like, <laughs> Anyone's faces. No one, You cannot see a single face. It is literally just like shadowy figures saying things about joining a group. It's like – yeah. It's not even dim. It's like you cannot see who these people are. Uh, Shelly says Hydro has finally gotten the pot smoke out of his lungs. Shelly says the offer they made for him to join Generation Next on the last show still stands. But Hydro says he's just focused on winning the pure title. And yeah, I just – I can't believe they didn't test this or shoot this a second time. It's, It's remarkable that this was put out into the world. 
It is amazing that this is one of those shows that, you know, this was, I believe, probably a lot of people's entry point to Ring of Honor, like, you know, the start of the Joe Punk trilogy. And the other two matches would get more buzz and better reviews and better attention. But this match got a lot of buzz. And, you know, this was a lot of people's first DVD, probably, or, or, or probably at least a few people's. And the production is has never been worse. <laughs> and it's just... <laughs> I, I'd say I'd say this one was the was the biggest, like just in terms of like like a promo, like a big angle in pitch black, like <laughs> I, I, like you you can't you can't do better than that, right? Yeah, I just it just it's just I mean honestly, the the, the, the what I'm going to remember from the show is the match we're about to talk about. But if I'm going to remember a second thing about this show is literally just the production. Which is, is kind of crazy. It's like the best and the worst of yeah. Ring of Honor here. Yep. And that brings us to the Ring of Honor world title match. Samoa Joe, the champion, went to a 60-minute time limit draw with CM Punk. Um, before the match began, ring announcer Jeff Gorman introduced Les Thatcher to the ring. He gets a big reaction from the local fans. Les is a giant fanny pack on, just a huge fanny pack. Um, yeah, what does he, he the, what does he need that for? He has pants. <laughs> like, uh, what? It's it's like it's like just he just likes it. Like, is it? What would he? I don't understand. Like, it's weird, right? It's weird. Uh, how many times in your life do you ever have a need to have a fanny? Like, how many times in your life where you're like, I have something that's not big enough to carry on its own, but bigger than I can fit into my wallet or my pocket. Like, here's the only time that I will wear a fanny pack. And that is when I'm like riding my bike and I want to have like my wallet or whatever on me, but I want to wear shorts with like with like loose pockets or like that I don't want them weighed down by you know like very specific situations, not just like when I'm walking around. Exactly. I mean that that's the perfect reason why a lot of wrestlers use fanny packs. I imagine you're walking around wearing your tights all afternoon, but you still want to be able to carry your stuff around with you, but. Les Thatcher is a not on the card tonight, and he's in street clothes, and he's got the biggest fanny pack you've ever seen in your life around his waist. But I suppose anyway. we've talked too much about Les Thatcher's fanny pack. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what people listen to the podcast for. Uh, Les then gets on the mic, and he tells Samoa Joe how impressed he's been with him and his title reign, and how he's turned that belt from a regional title into a world title that's been defended in multiple countries, the UK, Germany. Um, Les says to that to Ring of Honor, this justified doing something special for Joe. And Les reveals, after struggling a little bit with the bag, which he acknowledges and gets the crowd to laugh, the brand new Ring of Honor title. Um, doesn't look as good as the current Ring of Honor title. And I believe another thing I learned listening to an honorable mention is this title was made by some company that was trying to impress Ring of Honor to get all their future belts made with them. And... Uh, it just, it doesn't look as good. I mean, it's not a terrible title. It just doesn't look as good as the existing Ring of Honor title. Also, wasn't it really only used for this angle and then like never again? I think pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, pretty big match in Ring of Honor history. Some people I know think this match is overrated. Some people think this entire trilogy is overrated. Some people love this match. I think a lot of people, because 60 minute matches for so many are so daunting to watch, don't rewatch matches these matches because they're just like i don't have the 60 minutes to watch one match we rewatched it what do you think looking back and what do you think does it did it change at all from what you thought at the time not really um first of all this like like you say daunting it's like me um making excuses to not watch the irishman um 
It's <laughs> this is the equivalent of a three hour and thirty minute uh, movie in wrestling terms. Um, yeah, I mean, people think everything. You know, there's somebody who thinks anything's overrated, right? Um, I think in some ways this was one of the matches. Like, if you want to put a short handful of matches that put Ring of Honor on the map, this is one of them. Um, you know, Ring of Honor got a lot of buzz when it first started, or a decent amount of buzz. And there was, you know, one or two matches over that time, probably up until the Paul London match with uh, Danielson in 03, that got a lot of buzz. But there hadn't been any specific matches that really got the attention of, like, the Dave Melchers of the world in a while from ROH, right? Like, yeah. matches where that he, like, wanted to be like, I got to do a write-up on this match, right? Um, this was the first match in a while where Dave got the tape and gave it a start rating. Right. From Ring of Honor. Went out of his way to, like, make a big discussion about this particular match. And that would happen yeah. a few more times over the course of the Gabe Sapolsky era in ROH, but this was the first one in a really long time. So, like, this was, like, the beginning of a new era for ROH in terms of interest, and it was because of these two. Um, you know, and it was, it was it was a cool story. I don't even mean the story of the match. I mean, like, the behind-the-scenes story of ROH was in crisis mode. They lost AJ Styles. They lost Christopher Daniels. They had a big scandal. And these two guys were going to step up, and they were going to carry the promotion. And, I mean, damn if they didn't do it. Um, so I'll get to the match. Um, first of all, when Samoa Joe came out, um, did you notice that he was acting way more like an overt babyface than he had in previous entrances? Like, I don't remember. I mean, maybe he did it for the previous couple of shows, and I just didn't notice. But, like, he was, like, walking around ringside, giving people high-fives, had a big smile on his face. Whereas, like, in previous parts of his title reign, he came out a lot more, like, intense, like he was going to kick ass. Did that stand out to you at all, that he was coming out really like Mr. Happy Babyface? That that didn't stand out to me at the time. But now that you mention it, like, he was definitely, even just, like, I'm sure you'll get to it when he interacts with a fan in the crowd, he seemed like more playful, I guess would be the word, than Samoa Joe we're used to, like a little more relaxed and more like this is my house rather than I'm just like the intimidating dominant champion. Like a right. little more the charisma is seeping through over – not that he, he's always been charismatic, but it's like he's emphasizing the charisma a little more than like the intimidating part of them maybe and that is what Samoa Joe kind of becomes you know because he's sort of like the face of the promotion he becomes more of like a a full fully formed human being of a character at this point as opposed to the the dominator man that he had been for the previous year plus um so that stood out um and yeah like you said there's playfulness in this match I don't think it starts out super playful like it starts out in a pretty conventional really long match way I think we can both agree like they they don't exactly telegraph that they're going 60 minutes, but you can tell very quickly that they're going long, right? Like, yeah. Like they, they, they have a slow pace at the beginning. There's there's different like um, segments, but you know they they have they have the stare down early and they do a series of lockup. Like whenever you see a match where they start out where they lock up a bunch of times, let go and then do nothing, and then just lock up again, let go and do nothing. Like multiple times, you know the match is going to go for a pretty long time, right? Yeah, and and anytime you like in this match where like there's someone in the crowd or like a moment to milk, they like just there's a lot of times in matches where you can tell like they were told you have 15 minutes and they're trying to cram everything in. This match is like the opposite where you can tell it's like anytime something interesting comes up, like something in the crowd or something, it's like we have they know we have all that you can tell, but just by the way they deal with it, like oh these guys know they have a lot of time. Like, they can spend time on everything. 
Right, exactly. So they spend time on lots of lockups. Punk works a headlock for a really, really long time. They do a thing where, like, Joe is daring Punk to knock him down. And, like, Punk keeps running into and then knocks him down eventually after, like, a, a punch, right? Almost like a, like, like a, you know, an unexpected punch to the face. Um, then they go into, like, fast pace, like, roll-ups, reversals, things like that. And, you know, I got to say, the match, you know, it's a risky proposition to do something like this. But even at this early point where they're doing a lot of, like, sticky stuff to drag out time... The crowd loves it, right? The crowd is like enamored with the two characters, Samoa Joe and CM Punk. Um, And that, I think, gives them a lot of license to do a lot of what they ended up doing in the match. Um, I don't think they lose the crowd at any point during this entire match. Like, do you – like, did you catch at at a moment – like, I think – you know, there are times where they're a little more quiet than other times, but – Well, naturally. There are a lot of points where they're very hot, and I think for a 60-minute match – you know, when the, you're talking about how, you know, did you realize they were going long? Like when the crowd realizes it, they don't they don't shift how they act at all, which sometimes crowds do where they once they realize, oh, could this be a draw? Could this be long? They they kind of sit on their hands more. And this crowd does not do that. No, if, if anything, they are excited by the notion that they're going to see such a long match. Um, and I'd say about 30 to 40 minutes of the match involve pretty much the entire crowd on their feet, um, which you know, that's unusual. Uh, yeah. I, I made a joke to you, but I think it's true. Like, if a New York City crowd acted like this, where they were standing the whole time, you would get people chanting for them to sit the fuck down. Um, <laughs> I know this because even Joe versus Kobashi, if you watch that back, you will hear sit the fuck down chants when they are on the outside. <laughs> Go back and watch. You will see. It's there. Um, but, um, um, but yeah, so the, but they do, like, all their spots – you know, when Punk, you know, runs out of the ring from the after the face wash, face wash spot, um, Punk, you know, stalls by jawing with fans. What I like, I like, so this match is like Mark Nolte's bread and butter. Like, I'm sure that people might be annoyed by some of the stuff he does in this match, but the fact that they go so slow gives him a lot of time to talk about, like, backstories and, like, here's what Samoa Joe is good at and here's what he's been doing in his title reign. And look how CM Punk has won. He, he wins so many big matches and he just, like, really dives into the tail of the tape, the strategy. Um, you know, and Gabe, you know, he tries his best to keep up with that, but that's really Mul- Mark Nolte's best attribute as a commentator and sometimes it can be kind of in the way this time they have enough slowness that it doesn't really get in the way he seems to enjoy it um and i enjoyed hearing him talk about it there was even an interesting part where like gabe and mark were um almost doing like a a podcast conversation where they're like um who do you think has had the better run so far in roh punk or joe and they talk about you know in some ways they talk about in kayfabe terms like their big wins but then they also you know because it's gabe they always have to go back to like match quality too so it's it's funny to hear them talk like fans i enjoyed that so the commentary was was i think added an additive to the match as opposed to something that took away from it um there was a point they didn't lose the crowd, but they did lose Mark Nolte because Samoa <laughs> Joe is on the outside and he's stalling. This is maybe about 15, 20 minutes in. And he goes to the outside and kind of like jaws with a fan. And so the fan, like he puts his, his arms up in a CM Punk style X and uh, like, you know, to show I'm on Punk side. So Joe kind of like, you know, kind of like moves in his direction like he's about to punch him and the guy flinches and Joe laughs. And, you know, so Gabe loves it. Mark is like, oh, I don't know why he's, you know, why he's not being serious right now. And then 
Punk goes outside to the fan that he um, that you know held up the X, and Punk goes to pretend to shake his hand, but then pulls it away and runs it through his hair, and the cra- obviously they got a big pop from that. And I even remember I haven't actually gone back and looked, but I remember reading Dave Meltzer's review of this match, and that was some of the stuff that made him that took the match down a little bit in his eyes. Yeah, uh, we'll get into that later, but yeah, that's something definitely not just him, but other people thought. You, you created this such a serious, like, epic-feeling match, and then you had this moment where you kind of just did standard kind of co- crowd work. But Which I, I, I get that. I, I, can't, I can't argue with that. It, I didn't mind it that much, but I certainly get the critique. I'm not saying it's wrong. Um, but, you know, but then, like, the crowd is so into it, so it, it doesn't necessarily matter that much because then Punk goes back into the ring and grabs another headlock, and the crowd pops. For the headlock, like they're really enjoying like this, like the slow build that the match has. And I will say, like, it's not like all this stuff really ties into the finish, um, but it does keep it entertaining. And you know, they do, you know, they they just continue. They do fun moves, spots, and stuff. But at this point, getting close to about the halfway point, Nolte kind of introduces the idea that Punk is rope doping. Samoa Joe, you know, having making him punch himself out because Joe was really yeah. like punching at Punk a lot, and that's actually a theme that you'll see in a lot of Joe's longer matches that happen in the rest of the title reign, where the smaller opponent is getting him to punch himself out. I remember also seeing it in the Danielson match, which happens in October, which we'll get to. I don't know, whatever. Um, but uh, uh, someday. Um, but um, but I, but so at that point, you do kind of see. Um, some of the uh, the storyline aspects kick in. Uh, they they fight on the outside. Joe throws Punk into the guardrail, and then he sits down in a chair to rest. Like like, and I know like they're selling tired, but you could tell they are tired in this match. I know you mentioned to me uh, in your research you saw that CM Punk did another sixty minute plus match the night before. So while CM Punk is in good shape, it makes sense that he would be tired. And it obviously makes sense that a guy the size of Samoa Joe would be tired doing what he's doing. So, um, so yeah, they are tired. Um, but, but they do their outside stuff. You know, Punk goes for the ole ole, but Joe gets up and then Punk just like runs away back into the ring, which I liked. So like they're doing the mind games and stuff like that. Um, and so at a certain point, both guys, they put up their fists and almost like they face off with like almost like in a kickboxing match. And Joe gets the advantage. And he does one of his better tope suicidas, I think. Because he, like, rides Punk all the way down into the aisle. Like, instead of just, like, kind of a glancing blow with the elbow. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really good. There's also a spot where Punk goes for a Rana from the apron to the floor. Joe catches him, blocks it, and swings him into the guardrail. And I think that was the biggest spot of the match up to that point. Yeah, um, I love that spot. It's a great spot. I think they repeat it in another match. Um Joe does, um, at that point, the ole ole kicks, and he starts really dominating about at the halfway mark. He just keeps cutting Punk off, um, brutal face wash with the running boot, and Punk is starting to sell his ribs. But he, he makes a comeback, does a big crossbody, and Punk and then Punk takes Joe down with like a re- just repeated big kicks. But, and he struggles to get a leg lock on Joe's bare legs, like an Indian death lock type of move. But he eventually gets it, and Joe tries to chop his way out of it. Um, but Punk holds on to it for a while, so he's working on the legs, and Joe fights out with, like, headbutts, just, like, really aggressive headbutts. And this is when the crowd really gets on their feet and they don't sit down again. Um, this is when they start to have some near falls, including Punk hitting, like, a roaring forearm. 
And Punk actually gets a sleeper hold for a big pop. I always find it interesting how much more over the sleeper hold is than like a chin lock or a headlock, even though they're very similar moves. And I guess it's because guys in the past have used it as their finisher, which is, it's been years yeah. since guys have used headlocks as a finisher. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think like like do you think that's just because us like childs of the '80s where we remember like Roddy Piper and Brutus Beefcake and of course Ted DiBiase? Like, do you think if a kid was growing up today, they would prefer a sleeper hold to a anything else? Like, I'm not. Do you think it's only because we have that? Well, it's it's if they remember from their childhood those three matches in 2002 that Triple H won with a sleeper hold. Uh, (laughs) That that I guess that could be. that could be it. But otherwise, no. I think it just probably feels like a rest hold to, to them. Um, but yeah, but in 2004, it sure worked on the ROH audience. Um, and at that point, Joe tries to reverse into his own sleeper, but Punk reverses it and gets on another sleeper again. And Gabe is just going nuts over the sleeper hold. So he was clearly a child of the 80s too. Um, but Joe fights out of the sleeper, and then he hits a Pele kick to Punk to, to kind of cut him off, which I thought was just awesome timing, great spot. And that's when Joe goes after Punk's back again and his ribs, and he does a lion tamer and then like a deep sit-down Boston crab where Punk makes the ropes. And Joe starts laying in big kicks on Punk in the corner, but you really can feel how tired they are. Uh, did you notice this too? Like, Yeah. yeah. I think what you said before is perfect, which is the idea of they're selling being tired, but they're not really – like they know it's their spot to sell it, but they're also not having to act. Yes. Now, there's a certain point in CM Punk's career where a top rope elbow becomes a signature move for him. He was not there yet. He does a top rope elbow in this match. It is not a good top rope elbow, but he does get a two count from it. And um, then he hits like a back suplex off the middle rope, which got a big pop and an ROH chant as both guys are down and and they're still exhausted. But Joe gets a burst of energy and hits a big power slam and a cross arm breaker. Punk makes the ropes and then Joe goes to the Kawada kicks and then the power bomb into the Boston Crab. And every move is now getting huge pops and Joe switches to an STF. Punk makes the ropes and Punk actually connects with a. A top rope Rana, like it was just like he actually just hits a regular Rana for two, and then Punk hits a Pepsi twist, but Joe gets his foot on the ropes, and then Joe hits a sunset flip, but then he does the rolling cradle thing that he does, he gets two, and I gotta say, did not expect to see the uh, sunset flip near the end of a sixty-minute match, but there you <laughs> have it. Um, actually, Punk seems maybe more tired than Joe at this point to me, but that just could be because this was his second sixty-minute match in as many days. Um, and Joe hits, like, a decapitating lariat on Punk. Like, wow, what a lariat. Gets to... Punk hits a Shining Wizard out of nowhere. Joe kicks out, and the crowd goes nuts. Like, they actually bought that as a finish. Punk goes for another Shining Wizard, but Joe slams him down, leg first, and then does, like, this leg submission thing. Punk grabs the ropes. Joe goes for the top rope muscle buster, but Punk escapes... Uh, and he gets a pe- and the crowd chants Pepsi plunge and he hits it but he falls out of the ring and I don't know I I haven't watched that shoot interview in a long time but to me this feels like was this supposed to be the finish like it feels like maybe they did this too early I don't know because it feels no. like it feels like that was the peak of the match to me like I, I completely agree it's the peak but. Uh, all I know is uh, I have notes from this shoot interview they did. We'll get to them after. After, but uh, I do know when they talk about like things you wish you could change about the match. They don't mention anything like this. 
Well, because to me, it's like that would have been the perfect finish. Punk hits the Pepsi plunge, falls out of the ring, time limit expires, right? Like, exactly. I literally wrote that in my notes like one of, the, one of my only problems with this match is the finish is kind of anticlimactic, which I'm sure you'll get to. Yeah. When they had the perfect finish in the match. Like, yeah. yeah, just the idea that, you know, Punk hits the Pepsi plunge, but he lands on his knees. Joe is just working on his knees, so then he falls out of the ring selling his knees. And the idea that he gets back in the ring, but it's too late. That, that, that would have accomplished like everything. Yeah, um, and at no point had we heard the announcers mention the time limit at this point. But then Gabe's yelling over an announcer message, and then a few minutes later, Gabe's like, oh, I think the announcer said there was like less than five minutes left or something like that. So I guess at that point it was the 55-minute mark. And so Punk takes too long, so he doesn't cover even after the Pepsi plunge. And they do a double clothesline spot. This is why it just feels like they're call- they're stalling for time. Punk hits another Shining Wizard. Then a suplex, but Joe hits a dragon screw at the 58-minute mark. Um, he does kind of like an awkward slam off the middle rope. It really does feel like they were just making stuff up as they went along at this point. Um, it, like it feels like they had a good plan finish and they got to it. I don't know. It's weird. I, it's like it doesn't just feel like this is anticlimactic. It feels like it's kind of on the fly. It's not bad at all, but it's not the peak. Um, they do a slap exchange with a minute left. Punks hits a DDT and then he collapses. And Joe kicks out with seven seconds left. And that is the draw. Um, so you can see I took a lot of notes. I really liked the match a lot. I thought it was great. I get why. I think it deserved all the hype. Yes, they do improve on it. But think about where these guys were at this time. The ambition of what they were doing. the How good the crowd was. I think they had the right announcer in Mark Nolte for this. Like, I am unequivocally praising Mark Nolte in his performance in this match. Um, Gabe did a good job, too. Um, I, 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 you know, there were some moments of sloppiness, which you don't necessarily get in the later matches. So, yes, it's a work in progress. But I thought this match was, was awesome. I, I think it was... I really like Jay Briscoe versus um, Joe from the uh, cage. But I think this is probably the match of the year up until this point in ROH in 2004. Um, I, I really enjoy this match. I love it. And, but when I watched, rewatched this match, one thing that kind of went through my mind was I think a lot of the ring honor matches that we've loved, they're just as good if you have no context as if you do have context. Like I think if you watch, I don't know, Brian Danielson versus low key, if you just like good wrestling, you don't, you know, there's no, you don't need story or need to know their other matches or anything like that. I feel like this is a match that definitely, I think it's good no matter what, but I think it becomes great when you've watched all of Ring of Honor. Like, there, most matches aren't that way, but this match, I feel like because the story is just so important to it, like, it's such a simple story. And if, if I just told you, Okay, here's the story of this match. Uh, Joe, Samoa Joe's this unbeatable champion. Punk is the challenger. He had a non-title match with him in the year before. He lost easily in a sh- shortish match. And so Punk knows in a, in a fight, Joe's bigger, he's stronger. He can't beat him. He knows the only thing he can do to beat Joe, maybe, is to try and do something that no one's done against Joe, which is test his stamina, you know, draw the match out. And that's what Punk does. In the first half hour of this match, he just goes to the headlock. And the thing that's interesting, I also felt like rewatching this is I remembered him doing even more headlocks than he did. Like he did, does a bunch of headlocks, but it's not 
every single move. Like he doesn't pound it into the ground. It's he does a lot of headlocks, but he also does a bunch of other stuff. And then once around the half an hour mark or some or so, it's like he stops doing them where it's almost like he doesn't need them anymore. And I like the way they work it. Like if you watch this match in the first half an hour when he's doing the headlocks and Joe isn't tired, they have some strike exchanges. And every time Joe beats him in the strike exchanges, like punk gets, gets clowned. Like there's one where punk kind of claims a win and it's literally him just covering up on the ropes. And then after Joe's done hitting him, he like lifts up his arms to say like, Hey, I blocked them all. You didn't beat me. And it's only after he does all the headlocks in a half an hour, then punk starts winning strike exchanges. And I like that. They, they, I don't know how much of that was conscious, but given the amount of thought these guys put in these matches, I'm betting that's conscious where, you know, Punk goes from not being able to win a, a fist fight with Joe once to, you know, after I've done these headlocks and once we're a half an hour in, now he's tired. Now, now I'm even, and now I don't need to do all these headlocks all the time. And that story, I can tell a person that's never watched Ring of Honor that story and they'll understand mentally, like just consciously what that story is. But if you've watched Every Samoa Joe match, like we have, we've rewatched them all in Ring of Honor. You've watched every Ring of Honor show. You know, it feels different. It feels like a much bigger deal where it's like, holy shit, Samoa Joe's wrestling 60 minutes, you know, and holy shit, someone's getting the best of Samoa Joe in these exchanges. And oh my God, you know, Samoa Joe's not losing. And it, it, there's a novelty to it that you can only get when you, when you've come up and watched every show and know how much of a deviation this is. And it's just a really good, simple story that makes complete sense for who these wrestlers are, where the company is, what their character – like it's not just a story where sometimes you know a guy will work on, on a, another wrestler's leg. And it's just because, well, we need to have a story. This story is all about who these guys are. Like it wouldn't make sense to do this story with other wrestlers. It makes sense because the Samoa Joe character has – needs a way to be tested and this is the way. And – so, yeah, I think it's a great match in that sense. I think it's a match. There's maybe as little bit of a letdown in the middle where they do some submissions where it kind of feels like they're filling time. But even the parts where they're just kind of um, stalling because they're tired, I feel like that's completely justified even if they are really tired because you would be tired in a 60-minute match. And I feel like that's one of the things that gives this match a big fight feel is there is like space in this match for guys to sell. There's moments where they do a big spot and rather than move on to the next spot or even move to a pin attempt, they do a big spot and then they just both lie there dead, which again, I think makes it feel like a more epic. This is one of those first ring of honor matches where it really feels like this is a epic world title confrontation, like an all Japan kind of, this is the most important match in the world right now moment. And there are there are flaws in it. Like it's not a perfect match. Like you said, there's some sloppiness. There's a uh, there's a spot, for example, where Punk has to do the uh, he tries to do the uh, Ric Flair get whipped into the turnbuckle and like flip over onto the apron spot, and he doesn't do it. There's another spot where he's lying on his back, holding onto the ropes, and Joe does that thing where he's trying to pull him up by his legs, and then Punk flips and lands back on his feet, and it doesn't work the first time, and they just immediately redo the spot. Um, 
Punk also, this is a great example of Punk is one of the most obvious spot callers of his generation. There, there are moments in this match where you can openly just see without him even covering his mouth, like them talking to each other. There's an exchange where they're throwing punches late in the match where Punk is leaning in and saying something in Joe's ear between every single punch. Like he's like throws a punch, leans in, says something, throws another punch, leans in, says something. They do that like three or four times. Then they do a different spot. It's just, it's really obvious and yeah, there people complained about the crowd interaction. The fact that in the middle of the match, they interact with the crowd. And I can see, like you said, why, why that would bug people. But like you, it just didn't bug me that much. I can see why it would bug other people. I think it's also because it happened early enough in the match where it was like, they weren't doing it like minute 50. They were doing it like, I don't know, minute 25 or something, which I think does make a difference. And I, I think anyone who watches this, There's going to be some people that don't like it because it's a 60-minute match, but I do think it's a good match no matter what. But I think it's it's where I would put it, like where I like it. I I agree with you again right on with – I'd say the only match so far this year in Ring of Honor so far that is on the level of this match is uh, Joe and Jay Briscoe in the uh, the cage. And – but I think at that point – that match, I think, is great with no context. I think this match, to get to that level, you need a little bit of context. It's interesting. Um, I agree with you, and at the same time, I don't totally agree with you about the context thing. So, I wasn't a regular ROH viewer at this time. I did watch the Joe Joe versus Jay match, so I had that. But I hadn't seen a ton of, of Samoa Joe matches before this one. Hadn't seen a ton of CM Punk matches in ROH before this one. And I still like this match a lot. But I think there's more to the context that helped me besides just, like, the context of who Samoa Joe and CM Punk and ROH are. The context of American wrestling in 2004, I think, also added something to this match. Um, so, the, I think the, like the te- last televised hour-long world title match before this one was the Iron Man match between uh, The Rock and Triple H. There would be another Iron Man match in WWE like very shortly after this, but it hadn't been for a while. The actual last 60-minute draw, like, unexpected um, title match in a major promotion, um, I don't know, 1989? Like, when, when before this? I, I, I can't even imagine when it was. Um, I guess you also could say the, uh, the um, what's it called? The... What was the name of the show? Oh, when the night the line was crossed in ECW, um, you could count that. That would have been ten years before this. Um, but this was the same month that Triple H and Shawn Michaels did their like forty-something minute Hell in a Cell match. And I don't know how well you remember that match, but it was famous for being plotting and slow and over dramatic selling and just like not keeping interest during that time. I was going to say I'm trying to forget that match still. Yeah. yeah, but like that's what this match can be being compared to. Like they do a 60 minute match where they do sell, they are they are tired, but it never feels like that. They're never like just milking boring shit for a long time. They do a great job of making this feel like a special world title match. And that I think is also context even if you haven't been following ROH that much, you if you've been fo- we were following wrestling in America during that time, you knew how special this was. You knew how impressive a feat this was. And I think that added a lot to it as well. Yeah, and, and that's another thing where 
maybe that would hurt people that are coming to this match cold in 2019 because that context is not there, especially because, I mean, Punk was doing 60-minute matches before this, but this really started more uh, like a trend of lengthier matches on the indies for a while. We saw multiple 60 minute draws from Joe in ring of honor. We saw a a more than 60 minute match between Aries and Danielson later in the year. I think uh, PWG, I think did a 60 minute match with uh, AJ styles and Christopher Daniels, I believe. Uh, I think it is only fair to credit. I think IWA mid South really started the trend of the long matches, right? Punk and hero, right? Didn't punk punk and hero did like in 2002, they did like a 40-something minute ladder match. And then in 2003, they did a 90-minute two out of three falls match. And 93 wasn't, minutes long, yeah. yeah. And wasn't the uh, the match, Punk's match the night before, the 60-minute one, also with Chris Hero? Yes, the, the, the match, the night, like Matt said before, the night before, there was an IWA Mid-South show. And... Uh, it it was it was something like I forget what it was I think it was called something like one more time or something like that, and in the semi main event it was Joe versus here I think it was like their first meeting in a long in like a year or something, and they went sixty one minutes which for them was like still a half an hour shorter than their I think longest their last match. match yeah yeah but in fact let me just read off this was the card I was telling Matt about this one and I was doing the research a few days ago but this was during this crazy era era where. For a brief time, IWA Mid-South tried to, like, out Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor, and in a way, a way they did, like, in front of very small crowds. It did not succeed financially, but they had cards that were just, like, who's who of indie wrestling. The 2004 Ted Petty Invitational, look up those shows, just in crazy who's who. But look, this is the card IWA Mid-South ran the day before. All right, it's a 10-match card. Jason Dukes versus Hillbilly Jed was your opener. Star match, power. Star power galore. Match two was Samoa Joe versus Homicide. Homicide, who did not wrestle on the show. Um, match three was Danny Daniels versus Nate Webb. Match four was Colt Cabana versus Delirious versus H.C. Loke in a triple threat match. Match five was Knockout or Submission, Lacey versus Daisy Hayes. Match six was Tracy Smothers versus Eric Cannon. Match seven was Brad Bradley and Ryan Boss versus Dunn and Marcos. Match eight was Matt Seidel versus Austin Aries. I believe that went like 20 minutes. Um, match nine was Chris Hero versus CM Punk in a 61-minute match. And then your main event was Alex Shelley versus Jimmy Jacobs in a steel cage. Th- that's a better card on paper than this show. I mean, this show was not that good on paper other than really the one match. Yeah. So um, it's not that much of a feat. But yeah, like imagine... Like you, you, you just watch the sixty-minute match, and then you follow it with like a big steel cage main event. Now, there were wrestlers that had to follow this match too, but um, it's not. They did not have. They did not have the epic steel cage element to uh, to top it. Whereas uh, uh, nothing could top uh, this match uh, that we just watched. A couple other things we should. Uh, there's a lot of background to go into this match and the reaction, but a couple of things we should talk about. I think in the match itself first is. We mentioned, alluded to this at the start of the show, but the crowd was really good for this match. I think one of my favorite parts about this match is um, I would say there's a point maybe with 15 minutes to go where 
I think the match has gone long enough where the crowd starts feeling like instead of feeling like, oh, there's going to be a draw. I think they once it gets to around 45 minutes, it feels like the crowd starts thinking this match has gone on for a long time. Like the finish has to be coming soon. And because of that, basically everything Punk and and, uh, Joe do in the last quarter of the match, the crowd pops huge for like they buy into like standard moves that never end any match. And they're like popping big for near falls and things. And it's just like this great moment of just, and I actually feel like them not doing the time calls till the final five minutes actually helps the match in that sense, because they don't tip off the draw. And I actually feel like I almost wish they didn't tip off even the final five minutes, because I feel like this crowd was not seeing a draw coming. Maybe they saw a long match coming, but they were really buying into near falls late in the match for moves that I would never buy into. Right, because they did not do 60-minute draws at this point in ROH, and then suddenly after this, they definitely did. Uh, another point, uh, playing off something you mentioned before, which we were talking about just how you know wrestlers that were much more respected at this point in veterans didn't um, – you know, do as well filling up less time. I think a credit to these guys and something they're very proud of when they talk about in their shoot interview, they, um, is that they didn't burn everything. I actually feel like, I think Punk's just like, we didn't go through all our moves. I think if you watch this match back, Punk actually did do most of what he he can do. But if you look at what they didn't do, Joe doesn't do the muscle buster. He doesn't do the island driver. He doesn't do the choke. And they talk in the shoot interview about how Punk says, when you wrestle a guy and you know you're going to be wrestling them more in the future, you have to leave, you can't do every single thing you have in your arsenal because you have to save things for future matches. And I think... That, especially from Joe, it's pretty amazing. They do sixty minutes, and Joe doesn't do any of his big finishers. He doesn't even he, tries- do, he, he doesn't even do the suplex chain that like where he that ends with like the 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 straight jacket suplex that he's won some matches with. He doesn't even do that. So he really, yeah, he he saved all of his big moves. It's crazy because you would think a lot of wrestlers. I mean, if I was a wrestler, if someone said you have to go sixty minutes, I'm thinking I'm going to have to do every single thing I do twice to fill the time, you know. And and, Joe, and, and we, Punk actually does do two shining wizards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's what I would say. When Punk says that in the show, I was like, when I rewatched the match, I was like, uh, Punk, maybe, maybe you should have just said Joe was saving things because yeah, Punk kind of, you know, he does the Pepsi plunge, which he doesn't do all the time because he has bad knees. He does, you know, the Pepsi twist clothesline, like you said, he does. He does most of his biggest things where Joe leaves almost everything on the table, which oh, yeah, off really, the off the table. I Joe. mean, off the table. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the last thing we should talk about before we get to the reaction is, um, I disagree. We're gonna have another disagreement because I thought this was Mark Nolte's worst performance of the shows we've seen so far. He just did a bunch. Of, he's not. Whenever I criticize Mark Nolte, I always have to add. He is nowhere he is not terrible and he is nowhere close to as he's nowhere close to being bad like a lot of those early Ring of Honor commentators that we've documented in the first six months of Ring of Honor were. You know, Jeff Gorman being the lone bright spot. Um but I felt like he is supposed to be your um your retro guy, your guy that brings up the past. But I do feel like he did does it too much and he, and he, and it starts you start to tune him out because he just everything becomes related to an old match and i also feel like he said something at one point where he said something like i can't remember the last time i saw like a 60 minute match it must have been steamboat flare and like you just mentioned there had been 60 minute matches in wrestling between that and 
and this, and I actually think I have a note from Wade Keller's review where he talks about Mark Nolte. I got Wade Keller back up here, which is kind of unfair, but uh, uh, Wade Keller wrote, Mark Nolte has improved tremendously on this, his third Ring of Honor tape, but he's still not where he needs to be to fully do Ring of Honor justice. A historian shouldn't talk about Ric Flair's Rick Steamboat 60-minute classics in the 90s, and then he Wade writes in brackets, there was none, or how he hasn't seen a 60-minute match in years, and he writes in brackets, meaning he didn't see or forgot about last year's Brock Lesnar versus Kurt Angle Ironman match. So, I mean, I will, I do kind of agree that I don't think it's the biggest deal, but when you are the historian, you should get your historical points correct. And saying stuff like that was a little bit like, eh, come on, Mark. Fair enough. I'll I'll concede this point. I enjoyed the commentary. How about that? No, no, but and, and there there were parts that were good. Like I liked that they picked up literally mentioned, like you said, the rope a dope strategy. Like they literally that's the kind of thing where it's tying it to real sports in a way I like. Because this definitely was the rope a dope strategy. The idea of you know, for those who don't know, if you're a kid listening to this, you know, Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman. George Foreman was basically the Samoa Joe of his time, this super strong, considered just monster tearing through competition. And Ali was seen as the uh, the the underdog, even though he was the legend. And Ali basically laid against the ropes for the first half of the fight and covered up and let George Foreman punch himself into exhaustion. And George Foreman, who was not used to uh, fighting long fights got beat by uh, Ali like and did, that didn't go to a draw and so it's it's the perfect comparison but and I guess one other thing I, this didn't bug me but I think we'll see later on CM Punk will make fun of it on commentary himself but this is the debut of Mark Nolte saying the mustard fell off of the hot dog when someone misses a move and he does it actually in the main event so he broke it out and then used it twice but has that ever happened to you in real life did the have you ever had mustard fall off of the hot dog? My mustard is pretty. Clean. I think the only thing that's ever fallen off a hot dog is maybe some relish, like some pieces of it. But even then, yeah. I typically don't eat a hot dog like on the go. It's not like a popsicle situation to me where I'm holding it horizontally. Well, in New York, it actually is kind of an on the go food. But um, oh yeah, but yeah, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat hot dogs anyway. But I I did once upon a time, and my mustard never fell off. Yeah, it's it's pretty stuck on there. <laughs> just the way it's not even like slid off the, it fell off the hot dog like yeah. you just imagine it, like a clean fall where it leaves no trace behind but yeah yeah go all right so there's a lot to say about around the match but, this but, but was, actually so so you want you want to save the post match until after this because the post match yeah. is pretty important okay fair enough so actually let's do the post match first actually yeah you you know what matt you are smarter than me because actually the post match is better Put right here. So let's let me just scroll back down because my notes are all over the place, but we can find it right here. So after the match, Joe and Punk lie exhausted on the mat. The crowd gives a big round of applause. They chant five more minutes really loudly for quite a while. Uh, Joe has handed both his titles, both the new title and the old title, which is kind of weird. Like they should have just taken one of them away, but they need this for the angle. Um, the crowd really wants five more minutes at this point. They will not stop chanting it. But Homicide then runs in the ring and he hits Joe with a chair before spitting on him and grabbing his new title belt. Dave Prezak comes in with the mic. He want, asks Homicide what he's trying to prove and he gets laid out immediately for his troubles. 
Uh, Homicide grabs the mic and he tells Joe that this isn't over. And if he wants this belt, come to Brooklyn. He'll be waiting. The crowd chants bullshit. So Homicide finally gets some real heat from this. The crowd's pissed that he's interrupting this. Homicide has a big tantrum at ringside. He throws things around. He just gets mad. He eventually heads to the back. The crowd goes back to chanting five more minutes again. Punk finally recovers. He's been signed the whole time. He recovers enough to stand, and he grabs the mic and Joe's old title belt, which Homicide didn't take. And at this, the crowd changes their chant finally to thank you. And then after one fan screams match of the year, the whole crowd starts chanting that. Uh, Punk gets on the mic. He says, Homicide's never pissed off him and Joe like he just did. I would say in Punk's case, that's true. Uh, A couple shows ago, Homicide threw a fireball in some of Joe's face. I would say that's pretty (laughs) anger-inducing. But anyway, uh, Punk holds up the old Ring of Honor title belt, and he says, this is the most important title in North America. There's a huge Ring of Honor chant when he says that. Punk says that that's because of Samoa Joe, and he says, this is your belt, and he hands him back the title. Uh, Punk and Joe shake hands on their knee, and then hug, and then both raise the titles together as Punk says, fuck anybody that tries to stop us. Joe's theme plays, and they shake hands again. And yeah, this I think is like almost as iconic as the match. This really felt like a kind of almost like they were talking to all the people that were against them after the Rob Feinstein stuff. This felt like kind of like a fuck you, we're still here. It's exactly kind of like exactly what it was. He literally basically said it. And yeah, this is an iconic moment, legendary, and it's a call to arms. Basically like we're the new ROH. This is what we can produce. We're the leaders of it and we're the best. And they backed it up. Like they ended up backing it up. So like that made the moment even better. Like in retrospect, that this wasn't a one-time thing. Like they kept it going. They kept, they stayed true to what their word was. They continued to produce. They got even better. Um, and this was sort of the beginning of that era. Like if, if you consider this the first show of a new company, you know they have a brand new owner, full owner. Um, they're gonna get new logos, new everything. Um, new uh, main announcer. I'm just kidding. Um, they uh, this was this was a really big moment. Um, this really felt like one of those like big ECW rallying cry moments. And there hadn't been too many of those in ROH. Um, you know, uh, you have to go back to the Hit Squad getting people to chant ROH on a bus to to really get <laughs> moments like this. So I think this was great. I love this. I always remembered this. And I think it's very meaningful. It was like one of the most one of the most emotional moments in early ROH. I think, and, and I think it's it's a this is one of the most important Ring of Honor matches that we've w- watched yet in the history of Ring of Honor because the company desperately needed a match like this at this time. They needed something that would change the conversation from. You know, because when I was reading, doing all the research for all these shows, around this time in like the Observer and the the um, Torch, there was some talk amidst 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 some praise of of Ring of Honor of like the company's depth is down. Oh, the show isn't as good as it you know once was. You know, maybe how are they going to handle the loss of the, these talents? And they needed a match like this that was just like, no, this is a show you have. This is a match you have to go out of your way and see. We're still doing it. Something that's going to change the conversation. And they talked about in like the shoots. We had no background going into this match. Like there was no feud, no reason to do it. They created this, this entire thing that would become a trilogy out of, you know, whole cloth. And yeah, it's just two guys putting the company on their back when the company needed it the most. Um, and then, yeah, this match did become 
uh, like I just said, something that changed the conversation. So let's go into the reaction. Um, first, we'll go into some of the live reaction. Dave Meltzer wrote in the crowd report from The Observer, crowd was standing for most of the match, which a correspondent said was probably the best matching company history, and he was not alone in those thoughts. We heard from another person who said it was significantly better than the Paul London versus Brian Danielson match last year that did well in our match of the year belting, so it will be a tape to see. Uh, another I, do, I do think the match had more emotional heft than that match did, even if the work was nowhere near as good. Well, not nowhere yeah, so near. They were, but it wasn't as good. <laughs> it, it's, it's a more special match, I would say, in some ways. But actually, that's a good conversation point. Do you think, like, I still wouldn't put this as the best match in Ring of Honor history. I wouldn't put oh, no, this no, ahead no, of, no. like, no, no, no. Uh, up to this point, even. I wouldn't put it ahead of, like, the stuff we've really praised, like, uh, Homicide, Steve Carino from Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, or um, Danielson Lowkey, or stuff like this. But... It is a great match, yeah, and it does. Yeah. It, it, and like you said, it has that. Th- there's there's a, there's an emotional investment where this match takes me back to a time and place in a way that some of those matches don't. That's exactly it. Like this match, like you said, with the context, it has the history behind it to make it emotionally weighty. Um, I still like Danielson versus Loki the best from this early era, but you know it doesn't have the years of character building that this one did um uh the homicide versus carino match i think did so i think that one gives it a run for its money but also that match is not for everybody right exactly like that's a very violent match and this one is much just this one's a wrestling match so you know this match is a better as just like a straight wrestling match so but you know i'd say this is high on the list of the best matches up to this point but it is, i wouldn't put it as the best no so uh, going to the PW Torch, their live reports, or uh, someone said, actually, no, this is this is the PW Torch getting a direct quote from Gabe Sapolsky. Gabe says to the Torch, it was the greatest Ring of Honor match live and one of the all-time greatest matches I've ever seen live. And I was at 90% of the ECW shows, Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky tells the Torch. I felt like it was 1987 again, and I was back at the Boston Garden watching Flair versus Wyndham when I was watching Joe versus Punk. So that was Gabe putting it over huge, which I probably imagine a lot of that sentiment is genuine, but I also imagine maybe a little bit of it is, again, like I said before, this company really needed a match like this right now. Absolutely. It needed, it needed a match that that everyone would say you have to go out of your way, even if you're not a Ring of Honor fan, if you just are someone that likes to keep up with what's going on in modern wrestling, you have to buy this DVD, even though there's dust all over the camera, like you have to buy it. And it absolutely, I I don't know the tape sales, but I have to imagine it was. Um, Let me just see here. Uh, Mike Johnson wrote in PW Insider, there was a lot of praise from those in the company and fans who were in attendance for the one-hour CM Punk versus Samoa Joe Ring of Honor title match in Dayton on Saturday night. There were a number of people who regularly attend Ring of Honor who called it the best match in the history of the company, which covers a lot of ground. So again, all three of the major news sites are saying, people are telling us, greatest match that company's ever done, which... Obviously, it's going to drive people to buy the tapes. And then we got to the review. A uh, month or two later, Dave got a copy of the tape. 
Dave wrote, I already already had a chance to see the Samoa Joe versus Punk 60-minute match from Dayton. It was an excellent match. The only, ne- thing ne- the only thing negative, and I hate to even say that because of such a great effort from both, is that they don't have the polish of the guys who have done the 60-minute matches you'd compare them to. The match itself was put together great as they didn't overdo moves and spots and did the big moves at the right time. There was also a little too much playing to the crowd early in a manner that doesn't work in a serious world title match, which is what you alluded to before, Matt. But they had time to make it serious. They had a great finish with the standing and trading blows with the two exhausted guys, and the live crowd sure loved it. I'd give it four and a quarter stars. The new Ring of Honor bookie philosophy is getting away from great technical matches, although they'll still do them from time to time and go with strong heels. In particular, Homicide is a violent heel. Almost every match on the show had some sort of a gimmick to the finish. I don't know if I quite get uh, get that last part, but I actually will say I agree disagree with Dave on a fair number of reviews. I think he's pretty spot on there. I would probably give this match four and a quarter stars. The, 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 the difference is you are like you also would never give any match seven stars. So yeah, yeah, that, that. that's the difference. Yeah. I that's the other context we need. We need a lot of context for this match. Is four and a half stars was a pretty big deal for an indie match in two thousand four. Nowadays, when Dave's going to every PW show, PWG show, or a lot of them, and he's giving matches seven stars. This seems like no big deal. It was a big deal for him yeah. to give any indie match a star rating. Well, keep in mind, they're there at this point. He had not given a American match five stars since 2007. So that's a, uh, a worthwhile thing to remember. But I think his review was pretty spot on. I do think, and you know, it wasn't as it was a little sloppy in some parts. You can see in like just the talking and stuff like that. And even though the crowd stuff didn't bother us as much as others, I can see people point that out as a flaw. But I, I think his rating, most of all, is right in line where where I would go. And yeah, give or take. Uh, you know, I could see going four and a half for this, yeah. like whatever. But like, yeah, it's in that range. And Wade Keller gave it a four and a half. Wade Keller wrote in the torch, CM Punk doesn't look like a WWE main eventer, which is pretty, with his athletic shorts and everyday build, but he continues to shine in everything he does in Ring of Honor and has won over a crowd that isn't just going to hand him respect and credibility. He excels at one of my favorite traits, making it look like he's really in a fight during his matches, something Randy Orton, for instance, still lacks much of the time. So how, how's, how's Randy Orton doing with that now? <laughs> He's had 15 years to work on it. I actually, there's a lot of things I like about Punk's wrestling. I don't know if I would say if on my list of comments for Punk in the top 10 would be makes things look real. No, I also agree with that. I also, like, I get that Punk wasn't, didn't look like a jacked up bodybuilder, but did he really have an everyday build? Like, he clearly looked like a guy who, like, spent time in the gym, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of people, like, and Wade, in that quote, he outright mentions it. I think a lot of people couldn't get past the the basketball shorts. And I think, you know, it it says something where when Punk was starting to get ready to go to the WWE, he switched to the tights. Like, I think he was, even he was probably aware that was one of the big criticisms is that he looked like shindy or whatever because he was wearing, always wore these big floppy basketball shorts. Yep. I mean, that's fair. Which is a weird thing to get hung up on, but, you know, wrestling is, in some respects, a cosmetic business. And so I'm just going through my notes because my last thing, if I'm done with the rest of the notes before we can finally get on to the other match, although, I mean, we should talk a lot about this match. This is the bulk of the thing, but um, is – okay, here we go. We're just going to go straight to it then. 
Ring of Honor put out a straight shooting, one of their shoot interview series DVDs, where it was just Samoa Joe and CM Punk together. And for the first half of the DVD, it is just them talking about the three hour, the three matches, they did, the two hour long ones, and then the third of the trilogy. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff. It's still to this day one of my favorite shoot interviews of all time. It's, uh, uh, it, I think it, 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 it's not like, it doesn't have salacious stories. But if you want to hear two guys like really get into like how they think as far as their performance and like with with you know very and this was very shortly after those matches right this was like early '05 that they shot this um, so like they had really like they, they had really good recollection of it I think this might to this like hold up as maybe the best shoot interview ever to do that sort of thing. Uh, I, I the only thing is I think people won't quite realize how mind blowing it was in the sense of. There's so many wrestling podcasts now and things where people, wrestlers kind of take you through their thought process and backstage videos and all sorts of documentaries where in 2004, I think it was even in, even though that's not that far ago, it wasn't as common to see guys go this in depth where they're spending like an hour to an hour and a half just talking about three wrestling matches they had together, like going through together. Like, this is why we did this, you know, this is our thought process on this. And it's, if you're interested in these matches, like if you're interested in going back and watching the Punk Joe matches and you're already going on eBay or whatever or the dark internet or whatever, do yourself a favor and get this to listen to or watch afterwards because it's a great companion piece. But uh, I have some notes from those. For the, I just got notes on the first hour-long draw on for, for this episode. But they said for the first hour-long draw, Joe and Punk were hanging out together. The, the time frame they give is a little unclear, but they say it was probably like a week or two before the match. And they were go, they were talking about um, what they were going to do because they knew they had the match booked. But I, it's interesting. It sounds like their big idea why they were doing the 60-minute, why they thought that up. And apparently it was Samoa Joe's idea, a drunk Samoa Joe, they both say, is, that, um, is, is the idea that Joe was running out of title challengers at this point, like fresh challengers, and that they didn't want Punk to lose – and then not have a rematch, like so that they needed a way that Punk couldn't lose. And Joe apparently threw out, like, kind of half jokingly while he was drinking, "How about we do one of your stupid sixty-minute matches, you do, Punk?" And then they both say, within five minutes, Punk was on the phone to Gabe in front of Joe, being like, "Yeah, Joe says it's a great idea. Let's do a sixty-minute match." And Joe's kind of like, "Wait, what?" And he has like a week or two to do cardio, <laughs> but technically, it's Joe's idea, I guess you could say. Um, Joe, they asked Joe about the memory of putting the match together, and he talks about the helicopter, someone practicing on the landing pad. Uh, but Punk and Joe both said calling the match was easy. Punk says he likes knowing his matches in advance so he can think up ideas. He said the first match benefited from no one knowing it was going to a draw, as opposed to the second match, where he says, I felt like 75% of the crowd knew we were going long right from the start. Um Joe thanks the fan that he yelled at because he says at that point in the match, which I think was fairly early on, like 25, 30 minutes in, but Joe says at that point in the match, I was thinking to myself, I didn't have a lot left to do. He says he got invigorated again after doing that, that fan stuff. Um, Punk says all the headlock spots that all the fact that they were going to do all that, that was pre-planned, but a lot of the match was thought up, up on the fly. And he says a lot of the best stuff, they, he says, with stuff we just improvised on the fly. He says, you think you have enough ideas going into a match that long, but then you run out of stuff. And they just had to improvise. And that maybe, maybe that does go to your theory 
you were saying about the Pepsi plunge, maybe that should have been the end. Uh, they did. They they never outright say that, but they do say we had more time to fill than we thought. Like we didn't have enough pre-planned ideas, and we just had to start improvising. Yeah, um, I mean, it did look like it. I don't know. But who knows? Punk was also shocked at how strong a babyface reaction he got in Dayton. Joe said that he didn't think the Dayton fans were going to be ready for an hour-long match, but they held up the whole time. Uh, Joe said the match was a lot of fun and said it was a lot easier than he thought it was going to be. He said from the mental side of it, he's had 15-minute matches that were harder because with a 60-minute match, you get a lot of time to play things out. Uh, They asked, like, have you guys ever done matches this long before? Or I don't know if they were even asked that. But Joe says he had done a 45-minute match once in some weird little southern Colorado carny show. And then that was the only match he's done even close to this length. Punk said he'd wrestled all his long matches with Chris Hero. But he also had an hour-long draw with Colt Cabana in Wisconsin and a couple others maybe before this. And he said, I drew on all of those matches when I built this match. Um Punk says, don't believe the hype. Samoa Joe isn't stiff, but he does remember getting slapped really hard by Joe and his knee getting clipped and then having by a Joe kick and then having to wrestle hurt the rest of the match. But he says he works better hurt anyway. But Joe says, you know, yeah, I regret, you know, accidentally hurting him. And apparently that injury lingered with Punk for quite a while after this. Um Punk says a lot of people will say this is the worst match in the trilogy, but it got off the things to a hell of a start. They're both really proud that they didn't kill every spot under the sun. Uh, Joe thinks the homicide post-match angle was the first time he got real heel heat in Ring of Honor, and he points out that having homicide coming out at that point was Gabe's idea. So they were like, they do a lot of Gabe razzing on the shoot interview where they kind of tease him because Gabe's not conducting this interview, but they were like, no, that was a good idea, and Gabe came up with that. They, they, they make sure, like... That, that was all Gabe's idea for Homicide to kind of steal, get some heat there and steal the moment and, and transition things away. Um, they're asked if they would have done anything different. Punk says he wouldn't have messed up the flare bump and he wouldn't have let Tree Trunk for Legs kick his knee and hyperextend it. Um, and then finally they asked Punk... Is uh was his post match promo you know that one we gushed about scripted, and Punk said is it one of my promos? He goes someone said yeah, and he goes oh then it wasn't scripted because I don't script any of my promos, and he says he just says I meant everything I said in that promo, which I think you can tell. I think you yeah, can tell that obviously speak from the heart promo. He and he, he, well, he wasn't really in character. He mentioned homicide just to blow blow through it. He didn't really have anything really to say to homicide. And finally, after all that, Matt, we still have a match to go because that was not the main event. The main event was an ultimate endurance match, the first in Ring of Honor history. The prophecy of BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff with Alice in Danger defeated Generation Next of Austin Aries and Jack Evans, the Briscoes, and the Second City Saints of Ace Steel and Colt Cabana in 37-35. So... The stipulations for this match was it's a elimination four corners tag and every fall has a different step. So the first st- fall was a submission only match and the prophecy of a steel and no, uh, the prophecy beat generation next when Whitmer made Jack Evans tap out to a lion tamer in 1338. The second fall was a scramble match. BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff eliminated the Briscoes in 1721 when Moff pinned Mark after he and Whitmer hit like a doomsday device knee on him. And then the final fall was a anything goes match. BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff beat the Second City Saints of A Steel and Cole Cabana in 37-35 when Moff pinned Cabana after he hit a burning hammer on a broken piece of table. So 
huh, this is a this is not a bad match, but it's just hard to get into after that last match. And to the crowd's credit, apart from one part early on where they're quiet because I think the submission stip wasn't a great idea and maybe a little bit at the very end where I feel like the crowd finally hits kind of the energy wall from just all the wrestling they've seen. The crowd was fairly into this the whole, most of the way and everyone works hard in particular, like that final fall, you get like a full length hardcore match with a ton of unprotected chair shots to the head. And there's a lot of action, um, double blood from a uh, Whitmer and a uh, moth. I think the match overall is, I would say, is a good match that goes way too long. The only part of the match I really didn't like is I thought the first fall, most of it wasn't good because a submission fall, like submissions are fun when you're used to tell a story and there's progression and stuff. And this match, it was just because it's eight guys in the on the apron or in the match. It was just guys putting someone in a submission tagging out the other guy tags out two other guys work a submission hold and there was no real story so it was kind of not interesting but then near the end of that fall they just start beating the shit out of jack evans and stretching him and dominating him until they beat the beat him to get the first elimination and of course jack has the out with he's hurt from the walters powerbomb earlier but i would say from there on the scramble part's fun and the hardcore matches got a good amount of action to it but just too long Shouldn't have followed the last match, but I, I guess my assumption is Gabe didn't want to follow a draw, didn't want to end the show on a draw. I, I think a lot of people hate that. Um, do, would you have ended the show with the draw? And what did you think about this match? Um, I would have ended the show with the draw, but in hindsight's twenty twenty, I get what he was going for. I agree with you about the match altogether. Like it was a good match that was too long. I um. I like the last fall less than you, and I like the first fall more than you, because um, I really liked Jack Evans' performance there and some of the moves that they did to him. And I thought Aries was good too. I thought he he I thought he was impressive. Like it's clear why Gabe looked at him as like a, a main event level talent after this, you know. And in the next show, he really gets his chance to shine. But um, you know, like there was a cool moment where like. Uh, Aries like fish hooked Mark, which he does, and then Evans drop kicked him in the face while he was getting fish hooked, and then Evans got flippy, but Mark just like destroys Evans with backbreakers and J tags in and does more backbreakers, and then Jack's back is in is he's like he's just getting destroyed like you said, and I like the J he did a torture rack on Jack, and then Mark came off the top. With like a uh, like a boot or a or a knee to Jack's head while he was in the torture rack, and then Steel power bombed Evans and Cabana worked on his back, and, and he's just he's getting beat up. It's just I just think it's so much fun, and um, you know I love that. I thought that's what woke the match up and it woke yeah. the crowd up. But I thought before that you have like I don't know eight to ten minutes of just kind of meaningless submission work with everyone standing around. But yeah, once Jack comes in, it, it's it turns great because the whole next whatever long that is, is just everyone taking turns, like just destroying poor Jack Evans. I agree. Um, like that, it, it did wake up the matchup. Um, I, um, the second fall I thought was fun, but it was so short. Yeah. Like it was just like, there were cool moves. I, there was, there was one point where, um, where Jay, like, so, so Whitmer was going for a dragon suplex on Cabana. Jay like tried to sunset flip Whitmer into the suplex on Cabana, but the timing got really way off. So yeah. like so like Whitmer did the suplex, but it was late and he almost like suplexed Cabana onto Jay. It was 
not pretty. Um, I I like there was a moment where um Nolt, where um Gabe accidentally when he when Jay was working on Jack Evans where Gabe called uh, Jay Jack Briscoe, and you could tell Mark was not happy. He was like, "If you call anyone Luthes, I'm taking you away from me." <laughs> or I'm taking your mic away or something like that. Um, there was also a moment where um, Gabe, right at the start, was like, oh, how are we going to call another match? And Mark was like, oh, you know, you're right, but like, given what these guys are going through, how am I going to complain? And then Mark's like, and Gabe's like, yeah, you're right. I do sound like a wussy when I say that. <laughs> Which I I enjoyed that very much. You don't hear the word wuss very often in uh, 2019, but I guess in 2004 it was still around. Um and I'll say I don't think Mark Nolte was his historian thing was a great fit for Ring of Honor, but I don't think like he and Gabe had decent chemistry together for not having barely worked together. Like they get along. It, yeah, yeah. Gabe, I think Gabe they had a good rapport overall. Um, but yeah, so the scramble was good. It was just uh, it was just a bit like you know slight. Like it didn't really seem to they didn't do everything they could with it. I almost would have preferred if they made that segment five minutes longer and took five minutes off of the last match. Um, I don't think the last part had to be quite as long as it was. I think it got kind of ponderous at a certain point. Um, but in between, they decided to have Colt do um, crowd work, I guess to make sure that the crowd knew that the Saints were the heels and the Prophecy were the baby faces. I don't know exactly why they did it this way. But Colt did mic work, and he tried to heal on the crowd by calling them, quote, queers. Um, yeah. Which, uh, ugh. Doesn't hold up, but nope. I guess there's been worse in ROH. Uh, but nope, doesn't hold up very well, especially from Colt. You, you know, you hate to hear it out of his mouth because you kind of ho- hope for yeah. more from him. But I guess he's grown up, so that's good. Um, but he uh, he keeps talking about how the Saints took out Daniels in Ohio, and then the prophecy sort of come back, and Mike take, Moth takes the mic, and he's like, "We're gonna take one of your necks tonight," which is a weird turn of phrase, but. I get um, that's what he said. So that kind of leads to the match, and and then he says, "Oh, the Saints next. They're going to take home in a box." That's what he says. And Gabe says, "That means a <laughs> that means a coffin, not the Undertaker kind, the real kind." <laughs> I was. I, I wrote my notes. You're telling me Taker used fake coffins? I, like, like that's the fake part of the Undertaker. The coffin—that's the only real part. But also that he's going to kill one of them. Like, really? That's kind of what he was implying. But I have news for Gabe. This was the same month as the Undertaker, not with a coffin, but with a—I don't know if you remember—a concrete crypt where he murders Paul Bear. Oh my god. June 2004, Great American Bass. Look it up. Um, maybe it was July. I don't know. I think it was the end of June. But um, that's this month. So uh, they're not killing anybody like that. No concrete crypts in ROH. Um, did Paul Bear ever come back after that as a TV character? I don't know. That, that, that's going to be heartbreaking if that was his last like character moment. I mean, theoretically, he is dead. But... I mean, literally, he is dead. But I mean, at this moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the angle, um, he was dead. Yes, you're yeah. true. In 2013 is when he actually died. So he lived another nine years, even after being buried in concrete. Um, Going to move on from this line of speaking now, because it makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that's what Gabe said about The Undertaker. Let's move on. Um, so, but yes, way too many headshots um, with the chairs, just like over and over and over again. Um, Moth and Whitmer both bladed. 
Um, Whitmer's was way better than Moff's, or worse, however you want to phrase that. It was he was bloodier. Um, but like, so there were like a lot of big spots. Some of them landed more than others. I just felt like it kind of felt meandering. Um, but there were some there were some good big spots. Um, the ending was wild um, because they were setting up a table, like they were going to do this, the Pepsi plunge type thing through a table. Like, but but obviously Punk wasn't there, so it was actually. Um, that Moff was going to power bomb. No, no. Um, Ace was going to power bomb um, Moff onto Whitmer through the table, right? And Gabe was like, "It's going to be sick. I'm going to look away." And it was like, "Really? That's the thing. This the thing that you have to look away from <laughs> a power bomb through the table of all the things that we've seen a barbed wire match, everything. No power bomb through the table. Sick. I got to look away. But um, but Moff cut him off. He got he uh, he." Uh, took out Cabana, he crotched Ace on the top turnbuckle, and Whitmer, his exploder on Ma, on Ace, through the table, right literally on the back of his neck, it was disgusting. Like, that really was something I want to look away from. It was crazy. And then Ma followed it up by doing a burning hammer on Colt, head first onto the wreckage of the table. Both of them were insane. Like, those are real deal, like, crazy bumps by the Saints. And Moff and Whitmer won... And um, the the finish was great. The match was good. I thought the last segment was just too, a little bit too, like, just, I don't know. It didn't have a lot of flow to it, I think. It just it felt kind of like, the crowd was good, though, considering what they had just watched. They were, yeah. they were with them. I was shocked how with them they were for most of the match. I do think, again, near the end, until they brought out the table, there was like a minute or two where all of a sudden you can tell, okay, the crowd's finally getting tired. But I'm shocked they were as into most of that match as they were, considering they just saw like this really great 60-minute draw, and then they had to watch a whole nother lengthy match immediately afterwards. And yeah, so credit to that crowd again. Um, yeah, the match was good, and... Like you were saying, they gave a real huge effort, like the especially the final hardcore fall where just the sheer number of chair shots to the head and the bumps they took, like they gave a lot to try and justify this as a main event. But it's just something maybe it's because it's following the last match, maybe because it's too long. I felt guilty because I was like, you guys are killing yourselves. And I'm only kind of like at a six or a seven here, you know, out of ten. And yeah, but but but, you know, that happens in wrestling sometimes, unfortunately, and um, a few funny moments for a couple notes from the match. I don't know if these are all funny, but okay. Early on, there was a uh, Colts very, very over in this crowd to this crowd. And he tries to go for a pin in the first fall, which is only submissions. And Ace is on the apron is mad. And he just screams, Jesus, who trained you? Which of course the joke is, Ace <laughs> Deal it was him. is Cole Cabana's trainer. Um, Mark Nolte on commentary then during the first fall says, notice how nobody's going for pins here. And Gabe then like immediately jumps in and like reminds, of course, Mark, because that's, this is a submission only fall, you know, just trying to save for, or, but, uh, and also Colt had just previously gone for a pin attempt. Um, there was, there were so many crazy moves. Like we were talking about where Jack, one of the highlights of this match is just the crazy. It's like everyone gets a turn doing something crazy to Jack Evans, but there was one bump in particular where Jack Evans does a second rope moonsault and Mark Briscoe gets his, his feet up and Jack takes it like high on the chest or maybe even in the face. And then he takes like a crazy bump off of that. And it's just such a, you have to really see it to do it justice. It's just crazy. And I believe Nolte does the 
Mustard fell off the hot dog line again for that botched spot you describe. Uh, there's also another instance of man on woman violence because. Uh, oh yeah, how Ace, did I how did I let that slide? Yeah, Ace tosses Alice in danger into the barricade and then says, "Fuck her." I would. Everyone else has. So yeah, a little it's, bit it's of violence, violence and misogyny and yeah. everything wrapped into one. The ROH trifecta. I guess there's only two things, but you know, not the trifecta, but, the difecta. <laughs> but um so we uh that ends the match but not the show because next we get a loke promo in the building as the ring is being taken down finally another promo this is the rare inst- this might be the only promo that happens inside the building that we can see um loke the, we can see the ring being taken down in the background loke says he wants to know why masada and daniels did this to the kind of true loke points out that he hasn't even seen danny daniels in years before this happened so like he doesn't know why you'd want to attack me uh loke says he had every intention tonight of coming with a tire iron to end their careers and possibly their lives but then devito told him to wait until he healed up we should have mentioned that earlier i think on commentary gabe said devito has a knee injury from the last show and that's why he's not out here and i did like that loke ties in and goes the only reason i didn't attack you tonight is because devito made me promise we're gonna wait till we're together yeah it's, Masa- good, it's a good good attention to detail which a lot of promotions wouldn't even bothered with yeah and uh uh loke says that scramble cage will be nothing compared to what we what masada and danny daniels have earned for themselves which pretty pretty high bar to set also yeah. also they were mad at special k for like molesting uh, DeVito's underage daughter, and they are even more mad at the, at the new Carnage crew for pooping in their bags. That's a great point. Like They're acting like this is the biggest line that's ever been crossed for them when they just had a storyline where they near, where they, they where they thought a guy maybe was statutory raping one of their daughters, and the feud ended with a guy pile driving another guy off the top of a cage to a table and then saying he hoped he was his neck was broken and that he was fucking dead and now they're saying this will be bigger than that like bigger and um and it's all because of poop yeah it's all because someone shit in somebody's gym bag okay uh to be fair no one's ever shit in my bag before i can't say how i would feel until you have a daughter until someone shits a bag we we cannot judge this from experience. That's absolutely the case. Yes. Um, elsewhere backstage, the prophecy is celebrating. They're all very happy that they won. Moff says, I mean, they won all three falls in that match. We should note that. Um, Moff says, tonight will be remembered as the night the prophecy died. Danger and, and Whitmer are shocked because they thought the whole point was they were only going to die. The prophecy was only going to die. If they lost, they don't understand why he's saying that. Moff says tonight they prove they don't need to fight against the code of honor. They prove that they don't need a leader, and they prove that they don't need a, any women at ringside. <gasps> and uh, Moff tells Whitmer that they ha- don't have to be the prophets anymore. They avenge Christopher Daniels tonight, and that their debt to him is paid in full. He says it's time for Whitmer and him to make noise of their own. He says that Whitmer and them are going to go down in history as the best team in the history of Ring of Honor. He gives BJ his word that he – and he says he doesn't break his word or his balls for anybody. So I like that he cleared that up for us. Uh, BJ thinks yeah, do you that break your, is, Do you break your balls for anybody? Uh, I'd break my balls for a few people. There, there's a few important people in my life I'd break my balls for, at least one of them. Me? Uh, you're you're on the verge. I, I would have to think about it with you. It, it depends. One ball definitely break both. Oh, that, that's tough, man. I mean, my balls, they're, they're my balls, but I appreciate it, man. 
Anyway, uh, you're getting there, though. Thank uh, VJ, you. Episode 50, you'll be up to full ball-breaking oh. privileges. Yes! <laughs> uh, VJ thinks Moth is right about all of this. They shake hands and walk away from an angry danger who fo- growls and fumes and talks to her to the jewels. The prophecy will never die. And that is the end of the show. I, I wrote in my notes here. This was one of those Dan Moth promos that is solid until it goes on and on and on and makes the same points yeah. over and over again he for repeats, another he, minute. He really repeats himself in this one. Um, I have to say, though, so this is kind of a sad thing because – Alice in Danger never really gets back to the same level of importance in ROH ever again. Like, she has an angle, which we'll see with the prophecy, um, but she never, like, gets really so overdoing it. And then when she comes back with Daniels, he's a baby face. She doesn't have the same edge to her. She's never really, like, the important figure in ROH that she was in 2003, 2004. And it's kind of sad because she did a good job. Yeah, she's charismatic. She's uh, She can talk and... Yeah, she she deserved more. Like, she deserved to be in that I don't know that that Prince Nana level where they always find you know something him for a long time. Like, it shouldn't. But it seems like more she was more just tied with Christopher Daniels and things like that. Whether or not that was the best use of her, right? But, exactly. So that brings us to the end of the show. World title classic was it a classic, Matt? I mean, it, it's pretty easy to call this a one-match show, but I think much like our crowning a champion review, if it's a, a one-match show where the match is 60 minutes long and it's this good, that's kind of not a bad thing, right? I also don't think it's, like, totally a one-match show. Like, yeah, well, no, only, it's, yeah, it's better as a whole show than crowning a champion. Like, Ultimate Endurance is outright good. Um, you know, I like that that uh, scramble match or the six-way mayhem. You liked the uh, generation six-man tag. tag. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I think this is a really good show. I think, um, well, yeah, one of the better shows of the year in the ring. Um, the, the you know obviously the great match was spectacular and memorable and important, and the stuff around it was good. The booking was good. Um, yeah, I think this was a very 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 good show. Well worth watching if you can handle the fact that it's unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. And, you know, sometimes we recommend – a lot of times usually we recommend Ring of Honor shows just for the meat and potatoes, like reason of is this a fun show to watch in 2019 or whatever year we're doing the episode? You know, are the matches good? Are the promos good? Is this fun? Does it hold up? And then sometimes we we occasionally go, well, this match maybe doesn't quite hold up. But if you're just a fan of wrestling history or Ring of Honor history, this is like an important thing. This – you know, that match alone, the the World Title Classic match – it's both, you know. It's it's the second, probably one of the top two matches, if not the best match we've seen from Ring of Honor so far in 2004, and it's a very historically important match to the company. So even though, if my memory it turns out to be true, I won't know till we rewatch the matches. This is the worst of the three matches they have this year against each other. Like it's still really good and still just a very important turning point, I would say, in the history of the company. Yep, agreed so, on all counts. Like really, like. Well worth watching. Yeah, exactly. So it's nice to be able to give like a full-throated endorsement to a show. We'll probably be doing a lot of those coming up. Um, in our next show, we'll have to f- see how much how well we like this one in rewatch, which would be Survival of the Fittest, the very first. Uh, it's a six single. It's a it's a turn one night tournament where you get six singles matches leading to a six man elimination finals. Uh, Brian Danielson is back. 
a lot of good names in that tournament. We also get uh, Hydro versus CM Punk. So he, kind of weird now to think about Jay Lethal versus CM Punk, but it happened in 2004. And yeah, that should be another interesting show to cover. Yeah, I'm looking um, forward to it. So that's the show. If you guys want to get in contact with us, um, through the years at gmail.com is the email T H R O H for through, um, at Trevor Dame on Twitter or at mayor M G F on Twitter are our Twitter handles. We post on the, uh, we have a, pl- a, a thread in the pro wrestling only plug forum, the F four W forum on the radio show section. We have those. And I also have a Patreon that is stupid and completely unrelated to this, where I write about, Weird wrestling fans for five dollars a month. I put up a new column every single day, and this month that includes Christmas and Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve because I'm stupid. It's five dollars a month. If you're interested, you're probably not, but that would be at www.patreon.com/slash mecca mecca. That's M E C C A twice in a row, and that's about it. And if we don't get to you before the end of the year, have a happy holidays to everybody. Yes, and um, I'm going to stop the recording only after you say your true catchphrase, Trevor Dame. Okay, until next time, have a good holiday, have a great holiday.